to introduce should need no introduction, but this is not a just world, so I have to summarize his life for you so you can understand why almost 20 years after first meeting him in L.A., I galloped over to his ranch-like home in Parker, Colorado to talk about death and politics. So here's my attempt to encapsulate the David Horowitz story. Here it goes. I'm going to try to tell the story, so permit me some manneristic delivery and over-the-top flourishes, okay? Can we agree on that? Yes? Good. So here it goes. David Horowitz was born with a song in 1939. 1939. Pin that number in your head. What song, you ask? Well, it was a song of a dream of revolution. Quite a song. Lyrics by Karl Marx. They went something like, From each according to his oomph, to each according to his blazaz. There was a party dedicated to the song. And there was a neighborhood in Queens, the Long Island City section to be exact, where that party was going all night long with all the oomph and all the blazaz. Everyone who lived there danced to it. David's parents... All their friends, all their neighbors, danced to the tune of the Communist Party song. And they danced with their entire lives. Two of those neighbors were Ethel and Julian Rosenberg. You heard about them, right? You know what happened to the Rosenbergs? They were strapped to a chair in Sing Sing for dancing to the song in a manner of espionage. It's the first time that ever happened during peacetime. So the song. A lot of people loved Paul Robeson's rendition of the song, but nobody loved Paul Robeson the way they could only love the band leader. And that was Joseph Stalin. I assume you've heard of him too. The gorgeous Georgian, some might say. Stalin was the band leader, just a fellow with a wand, but a fellow on whom all hope for universal brotherhood then rested. And then he died, and that was fine. But then a report leaked from the Kremlin, called the Khrushchev Report, which acknowledged certain monstrous crimes by Stalin that the Long Island City partiers had spent their lives disbelieving. The music stopped. The party was over. They still believed in the song. They still believed in the lyrics. But after the Khrushchev Report, any hope of a performance of universal brotherhood on the geopolitical back of the USSR was dashed to 20 million pieces. And I keep repeating the phrase universal brotherhood only because I think it presents the old commie ideal in its best possible light. I am nothing if not fair, if I do say so myself. But anyway, after the Khrushchev report in 1956, it was over. It was done. David's parents became relics of something literally called the old left. But they had a son named David. So soon, there would be a new left. David was passionate, loyal, smart, right out of the gate. He was a radical son. Think about being a radical son. It's not a common thing. Radicals have a destination in their eye. 
And so as a radical son, it fast became David's mission to salvage the socialist song of his parents. Update the lyrics, rearrange, find new instruments, adjust the pitch and tempo, rescue the melody of universal brotherhood. Because humanity will no sooner abandon an ideal like that then I will abandon this stupid fucking song metaphor. Horowitz studied hard for his task. He studied Shakespeare in addition to Karl Marx. He studied Shakespeare and wrote a book about Shakespeare for all his radical passions. Think about that. He flew to London to work for Bertrand Russell. He flew back to Berkeley to become an editor at Ramparts, the leading intellectual magazine of the New Left. His first book, he would write, was called Student, and a fellow by the name of Mario Savio would pick it up in a drugstore, I believe in Kansas City, and be so inspired by it that he'd move to Berkeley to start the so-called free speech movement using David's rhetoric. For human beings! There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. At Ramparts, David Horowitz became a true intellectual activist co-author of the New Left Movement which had marked its departure from the daddy left by disassociating from Soviet Russia and any official revolutionary aims in favor of a long, diffuse, protracted cultural infiltration. And most of the talent was there to help. Through Ramparts, David somehow dealt with every major 60s activist cultural figure. He was involved in editorial decisions to publish state secrets that influenced America's exit from Vietnam. He went balls deep on civil rights, getting deeply involved with the Black Panthers. First, he was an intellectual whisperer to Huey Newton, if you can believe it. Then he literally spearheaded the first Panther school in Oakland, raised the money, and made it happen. He was in deep with the Panthers because he thought they were fighting for something good and fighting for something final. To help out the Panthers, he even brought over his friend Betty Van Patter, a white woman accountant at Ramparts, so she could balance their books since... Money had a way of disappearing at the Black Panthers. So she switched over, and then she disappeared. And then David found out it was murder, and then he found out that none of his friends or Betty's friends in the New Left had any interest in bringing justice to the perpetrators or even really finding out who they were, because they were the Panthers. And then he began to realize something that a number of older Shakespearean radicals realized on the year of his birth. Like George Orwell, like John Dos Passos, like W.H. Auden and Whitaker Chambers in 1939, David Horowitz in 1975 began to realize that the song of leftism, new, old, or middle-aged, was a death march. Nice. 
united forever in friendship and labor. Our mighty republics will ever endure. The great Soviet Union will live through the ages. The dream of a people, their fortress secure. Long live our Soviet motherland. Built by the people's mighty hand. Long live our people, united and free. Strong in a friendship tried by fire. Long may our crimson flag inspire. Shining in glory for all the men to see. September the 1st, 1939. I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid as the clever hopes expire of the low, dishonest decade. Waves of anger and fear circulate over the bright and darkened lands of the earth, obsessing our private lives. The unmentionable odor of death offends the September night. Accurate scholarship can unearth the whole offense from Luther until now that has driven a culture mad. I and the public know what all school children learn. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Exiled Thucydides knew all that a speech can say about democracy and what dictators do, the elderly rubbish they talk to an apathetic grave, analyzed all in his book, the enlightenment driven away, the habit-forming pain, mismanagement and grief. We must suffer them all again. Into this neutral air where blind skyscrapers use their full height to proclaim the strength of collective man, each language pours its vain competitive excuse. But who can live for long in an euphoric dream? Out of the mirror they stare, imperialism's face and the international wrong. Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out, the music must always play. All the conventions conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home. Lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood. Children afraid of the night, who have never been happy or good. The windiest, militant, trash, important person's shout is not so crude as our wish. What Mad Nijinsky wrote about Diaghilev is true of the normal heart. For the error bred in the bone of each woman and each man craves what it cannot have. Not universal love, but to be loved alone. From the conservative dark into the ethical life, the dense commuters come, repeating their morning vow, I will be true to the wife, I'll concentrate more on my work. And helpless governors awake to resume their compulsory game. Who can release them now? Who can reach the deaf? Who can speak for the dumb? Defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies. Yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. 
May I, composed like them of eros and of dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. Most red-pilled journeymen like to go, my beliefs didn't change, it was the left that left me, biddy 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 JFK. Not the case with David Horowitz. He transformed, and it didn't happen overnight. It happened over 10 long and dark years of remorse following the death of Betty Van Patter. Remorse at her death, remorse at the genocide victims in South Vietnam following America's exit, remorse, not quite remorse, on AIDS, because this time he was prepared for the real-time activist trickery, but bitter confusion and exasperation at seeing that epidemic go out of control because of righteous blindness. Like before, he studied, and he studied, and he studied, and by the time he looked back up sometime in the mid-80s, he had fully transformed into the left's deepest enemy, none more despised. And the feeling was mutual. Because over and over again, David Horowitz had witnessed up close how, sing all they want about justice, the habit of the left was injustice. The summons I answered was modest, he wrote. It was to bear witness to what I had learned. My mission was as much for myself as for anyone else. It was about wrestling with the most powerful and pernicious of all human follies, which is the desire to stifle truth in the name of hope. In his new role, Horowitz had a unique weapon. And remember, it's not a weapon the vast majority of converts, red pill types have, because the vast majority of red pill types were not foundational ideologues on their former side. It was a weapon de DJAF. The weapon is that no leftist alive today is as left as he once was, and for real. He deployed that weapon in essays, lectures, at conferences, in a magazine he founded with his friend Peter Collier called Heterodox, uh, on the radio, and then in the mid-90s, he released a literary classic. It's called Radical Son. and narrates the full story of his life, to that point, in gripping, squeezing detail, with total introspective honesty, and intellectual candor to the degree anyone can be just to their prior selves. It's a biography of a journey from lie to truth, but it's also a quest to understand his parents. Mom and Pop Horowitz, communist radicals in Long Island City. It's a real deal book, and certainly the most important political memoir since Witness by Whitaker Chambers. And I think Whitaker Chambers is a bitch, so I'm going to say Radical Son is even better than Witness, even though I haven't read Witness. I've heard about it. I haven't read it as of yet. But he's a bitch, and I guess I don't always play fair. I read Radical Son for the first time in high school on my hunt for political vocalists. I also read Hating Whitey and The Politics of Bad Faith and many of the elegant polemic and biographical essays which flowed from David Horowitz's pen and are now collected in his giant anthology, The Black Book of the American Left. Unlike most conservative political analysts, Horowitz was based in Los Angeles, which, as you know, confers a rebel warrior flavor that we never get from the District of Columbia. He was never afraid to get his fists dirty. He never put on airs. He pitched a bigger tent than anyone in his field. 
But also, as a writer, he was so much more enthralling than the usual facts and logic pundit product. Most conservative writers had arguments with numbers and statistics about fatherless homes and Chiniqua's fetus. David Horowitz had a voice. A cawing, derisive voice, as Philip Larkin once described Bob Dylan's. A cawing, derisive, battle-ready voice. And this voice was not satisfied to murmur indoors. I know I'm doing it again. I can't help it. Shakespeare wasn't going to suffice. The ex-radical wanted to activate. Instead of surrendering to the tides of history with a genteel yelp of stoop... Horowitz organized nationwide campaigns across American campuses like Students for Academic Freedom with missions to subvert racial propaganda and academic censorship. Decades before those forces would form an absolute chokehold on American culture. Most conservatives were playing patty cakes with pet social studio religious causes. David Horowitz was playing for freedom. Or should I say, dancing for freedom. The man had left the party, but the song had never left the man. And this is where I dial up Camille Paglia as an expert witness. I respect the astute and rigorously unsentimental David Horowitz as one of America's most original and courageous political analysts. He has the true 1960s spirit, audacious and irreverent, yet passionately engaged and committed to social change. As a scholar who regularly surveys archival material, I think that a century from now, Cultural historians will find David Horowitz's spiritual and political odyssey paradigmatic for our time. Paglia wrote those words in Salon in 1999, after the New York Times accused Horowitz of being a bigot for saying something truthful about race. I'll read her entire defense later in the episode. But the point is, she wrote those words even before the David Horowitz odyssey embarked on its third and most shocking act, which would cement my connection to him long after my interest in political current events was wrapped up in mothballs. In 2003, Horowitz released a slim book called The End of Time. The cover, a photo of a man fading into the misty din of the Pacific Ocean. In the book, with his trademark unsentimental rigor, but with no polemical sleight of hand, Horowitz confronted the one adversary more powerful than the fascist right or the communist left can ever be. I quote, Who doesn't know that death is waiting, but who plans their day with the end in mind? Eventually, you may get far enough along that it is a prudence to greet each morning as though it were your last. But until then, the end is only a distant horizon silently drawing near. It approaches so slowly that you can hardly see movement. Then, a day comes, perhaps when you have already reached middle age, when its shadow enters the corner of your eye and remains there, and for a dreadful beat shuts everything down. The End of Time and its sequel, A Point in Time, and more recent meditations on the big D, are now available in a single volume called Mortality and Faith, Reflections on a Journey Through Time. Think Gaspar Noé's Vortex 
but as a book by a radical Jewish cowboy. Despite many bestsellers over his career, Horowitz is obviously a pariah in the mainstream publishing world because of his politics, and the conservative audience who usually buy his books are obviously incapable of processing such a literary departure. So these reflections have, of course, gone unnoticed, but not by yours filthy. So I galloped over to his new home in Parker, Colorado, to reflect on everything. The day before I arrived, he took a bad fall, so his voice is fainter than usual. But the spirit is as deathless as ever. We were scheduled to meet at 10 a.m. He called me at 7 and said, where are you? We could have talked all day. He's like that. He's just, he's always been real. He's always been game. It was actually my sleep-deprived ass that hit the wall. We reflected on the various battles of his life and career, his friends and enemies and rivals, his upcoming book, which could not be more relevant in terms of the uh, online religious wars. And most of all, my real reason for the visit, we shot a few glances over at that ever-looming mortal shadow. So... That's my storybook attempt at introducing the storybook life of David Horowitz, a life not just of two acts, but of three, and these days one act is a lot. I join Camille Paglia in declaring David Horowitz a true American icon and a world historical figure. He gave us the best of his left, and then he gave us the best of his right, and then he took on mortality. What more can you ask of a single man? And if anyone has a problem with him, they are cordially invited to suck my song. It's everywhere I look From Las Vegas to right here Under your dresser Right by your ear It's creeping in sweetly It's definitely here There's nothing more deadly Than slow-growing fear Life was full and fruitful And you could take a real bite The juice pouring well over your skin's delight But the shadow it grows And takes the depth away Leaving broken down pieces To this priceless ballet the shallower it grows, the shallower it grows The fainter we go into the fade out line The shallower it grows, the shallower it grows The fainter we go into the fade out line Do we build all those bridges to watch them thin down to dust Or blow them voluntarily out of constant trust The clock is ticking it's last couple of talks And there won't be a party With weathering frogs The shallower it grows The shallower it Oh no Is that shit Is that Is it relatively I mean, Well I'm walking today you're walk. That is that the leg you had a drop foot yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm 
continually amazed at your uh, your comebacks in in life. I mean, reading I, mean, I didn't even know the half of it because I didn't know about your your medical trial. Well, I, I actually you know, was focusing on the what it looks like to grow old, kind of. So I included a lot of medical stuff. Uh, I mean, I think it's I think it's a very uh, valuable contribution well, to record to record the your your triumphs over. Yeah, but I've been punished for my politics. Yeah, you've been punished for your politics. What's the latest punishment? Oh, I can't I can't make it public. The biggest punishment is that I'm ignored of my literary writings. I did have one. What was his name? It's on the back of uh, a point in time. Uh, Stanley Fish, who was pretty big, pretty little. Right, a duke, right? Yeah, I know, I know him. Yeah, he, but uh, I don't, I, I don't exist. You've you've been completely whitewashed from airbrushed. Airbrushed. Oh no. Yeah, out, out of all, out of you know the mainstream literary. Yeah, but conservatives have had it. I I don't like to start with that complaints. No, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to no. But you know. Where is your standing in the conservative movement right now in terms of the ones? Oh, that I aren't think I'm a toxic. I think they're all scared to be associated. The conservatives disapprove of confrontations. We know this from... It's basically what I do. Who can blame them in a way, you know? I, I wrote about this in, uh, in The Enemy Within, but I did a speech for Alec. Well, this, now I'm, 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 I'm justifying their bad behavior, but uh, I was invited to do a speech for Alec by... Um, the Convention of the States. I forget the guy's name. For Alec, Alec is the uh, Alec is the uh, Association of oh. Legislative. Ex- it's state reps and spy partisan. So oh, okay. I'm going for twenty years. Interesting acronym. And uh, yeah, and uh, so I gave a speech, basically <laughs> saying the doggy is here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, this is impossible. <laughs> um, so I thought we were going to talk about mortality and faith. No, we are. We are. I've deflected it. Uh, no, it's okay. We'll, we'll get there. Don't we have? Um, I have all the time in the, the world. So this is in the book. Yeah. Okay, so I uh, I gave a speech which basically said Trump has shown that you can be confrontational. Now's the time to do it. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah. And I gave this example. This is the only thing that anybody could possibly take <laughs> strong exception to. I said the example of how weak Republicans are is that in California, the school curriculum is by... What's the Islamist thing? Care. Oh, care. Yeah, yeah. And the, in Brooklyn, it's Black Lives Matter. Writes oh, the curriculum. Writes the curriculum. So, and then I, the other sin I had 
was I was on a panel and I uh, again just to emphasize the um, the lack of strength of the lack of uh, the lack of bite and the lack bite. of yeah bite is a good good word. Um, well, you always I, stood I out. I gave the example of Trump. Uh, the, what won me over to Trump was the first debate and the first question, which wasn't a question, it was an attack by Megyn Kelly. You called women fat slobs and pigs. And he yeah. said, only was he O'Donnell. Yeah. <laughs> that won over and a lot of people. Didn't miss a beat. Didn't yeah. miss a beat. I said, oh, this, this guy can fight. This is a new level. Of- but there was a... Democrat state legislator in the audience. I didn't. It didn't even occur to me that there would. She might be a Democrat. Right. You can't call women. You can't say that. I. I said even if they are fat slobs and pigs like <laughs> Rosie O'Donnell, <laughs> nasty too. Within a week, they had got seventy-nine leftist organizations to attack Alec. Alec lost, I'm sure they lost between eighty and $100,000. Oh, my God. Um, worse, it happened in August 2018. Um, so there was the uh, California primary where DeSantis, well, it was an election, it wasn't a primary, running against that drug addict black guy. Um, yeah, kill him. So... The Washington Post started it off by um, insinuating that I was a racist. But with them it was more of an insinuation. But then the leftist press, and there were headlines like uh, uh, DeSantis spoke four times for an infamous racist. Right, infamous racist. Yeah, so I'm, I was surprised next year that we had any, anybody come to the weekend, any representative. Andy Biggs showed up, um, but I mean, isn't this become such a such a, a watered down insult at this point? To call it is, but it's very effective, and people don't like to admit it, but it's very. very oh no, it's effective. Everything clearly, everything I do, it's always the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. They. they and, well, they, they got you banned from I Twitter, put right? The speech. No, I have a secret. Oh. Uh, so, I don't want this publicized. Oh, okay. And I'll tell you this. Okay, okay. I'll take it out. I thought I saw Ann Coulter tweeting that you were banned just recently still. I, I don't understand that. She disappeared for like three or four years, and now she's come back, and it's about college. That's what we were doing 20 years ago. <laughs> and so she's, I haven't been in touch with her. Yeah. Uh, and she said, she's, She's a little bit too, you know, too much of an attention getter. She said really stupid things about Trump. And she seems to have been on this endless tirade against Trump. Yeah, so over I, whatever. I don't want to deal with that. You know, I, I started off as a literary person. I wrote a book. Uh, my first wife ruined the title. Student was your first book. No, it was called Shakespeare, Shakespeare. And Existential View. Right, and it's and I prefer the original title, Shakespearean Grace. You knew that. Oh, yes, right. I, if that book's not in print, why can't we just talk about it in its original title, Shakespearean Grace, and retitle it? Oh, I, 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 <laughs> you can get it off. Oh, I can get it. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Then I will.
Yeah. I'm glad that it's around. So tell me about that book, because you didn't get into it that much in Radical Son. You mentioned that you wrote it. Well, I, I had a wonderful professor at Columbia, a Shakespeare professor. And uh, a lot of it is, you know, it's very influenced by him. Yeah. But um, anyway, I had literary pretensions, I guess. Not really. Hello. I'm so sorry about the dog. Oh, don't know. So I didn't realize the time that you're coming, so, but I got it under control. And is this live or is it going to be a live interview? Well, it's 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 not li- it's it's hey. going to be it's going to be a, it's a, a podcast. It's a podcast, so it's not like being broadcast at the moment. But, uh, is this okay down here? Yeah, ab- here. absolutely fine. It's okay? Yeah. Do you want a water? Um, I th- I'm a, I'm okay. I'm okay for okay. now. Yeah. Right, you want, maybe, I'll take, you know, just for the sake of the future, in case my throat, our throats dry up maybe yeah, a little bit. Yeah. perfect. It's perfect for me. Thank you so much. Um, That's your wife, uh, April. April, yeah. We just had our 20, 24th wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. I loved reading about the relationship that you've had with yeah. her. I was very pleased when that came out. It's, an, it's very... I got, I got seized at some point. I remember I was sitting in the San Diego airport with this thought of, of writing about age, getting old. Was there an so, image? In, was there a trigger to that, to that or you, it just ha- came to you in the San Diego airport? Yeah, I, I kind of wrote... I, the beginning, the opening paragraph of End of Time in the the San Diego airport. When he was alive and I was still young, my father told me his version of the fall. We begin to die the day we are born, he said. What I think my father meant by this was that the cells, which are the invisible elements of our being, are constantly churning in nature's cycle. Silently, without our being aware of their agony, they are inexorably aging and taking us with them. Year by year, the skin parches, the sinews slacken, and the bones go brittle until one day the process stops and we are gone. At least that is what I think my father said, because that is all that I can remember. And what I can remember is all that is left of the time we spent together long ago, a fading image now like the rest. I can still see the sunlight on the green hedge where we paused on the sidewalk. I can see the mottled sycamores shading the street and the way my father turned until the tan dome of his forehead caught the glint of light when he shared his thought. Writing keeps me sane. I've written too much, but um, you you get to arrange the world and you want justice. Right. It's It's on your page. And the kind of justice I want to—I'm going to get back to Shakespearean grace, but that's my—I'll—I'll I'll try to keep thing, you know. I can't remember what what I. I, I remember. Okay, so I, I haven't read that book in right. fifty or sixty years. I in in can't be sixty years. Fifty. Well, it's uh, fifty. What was it, in the mid sixties that you wrote it, or sixty years? Yeah, I yeah. wrote it. Yeah, almost sixty years. Almost. <laughs> it's just, but you know, this, these are all. Uh, in the blip of time, these are these are just winks, you know, sixty years. 
But yeah. you you seem to have, as I interpreted your description of it in uh, Radical Son, it seemed to be connected to your, you know, your kind of Marxist, your ideological ambitions as a as a thinker to... Yeah, what's ridiculous, I thought of myself as a political theorist. Right. Like... And you were, were you, you were driven to try to make some sort of connection that hadn't been made before between the, your political theory and reality. Uh, it's, in what? In, it's in the sense, I think, I feel like there was a symbolic, there was a sense in which, as you described it, uh, there was a symbolic structure to human life that uh, in, in some way, in some way, hello. Hi, it's Trinity, my, my sister's uh, granddaughter. Hi, Trinity. So I'll put this here for you. Oh, thank you so Trinity, much. Trinity, did you say hi? Nice to meet you. She's a little sad she lost her pink pencil. Oh, so I'm sorry. The world is full of pink pencils. Yes. <laughs> we can definitely find more pink pencils. I don't know, it's been a long time. Yeah. When no, I was I'm driving it. I I had this. But um, well, look. I mean, Marxism, socialism is a fantasy. So, you know, and, and it's funny. I mean, these idiots on the left—they're reimagining the world. It's so stupid. Right. You know, but it's it's a mindset. Create a new world. Do you remember the? Do you remember what part of Shakespeare was kind of galvanized you so enough to want to write that book about his play? Oh, well, it was that class that I took. I, I actually gave the. It's a kind of funny story. The Shakespeare. I was a TA at Cal, and I gave the. I, I thought the high point of my career at that point was. I gave. The, my professor was out of town for the King Lear lecture, so I gave the lecture on King Lear. And I loved this book by G. Wilson Knight called The Wheel of Fire, where Lear, when he's betrayed by his daughters, um, describing his pain, says, I am bound upon a wheel of fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Peter Collier was in that class. And so I met Peter. I want to talk to you about that, him, by the way, and yeah. your friendship he over came the decades. And, uh, um, yeah, he, well, I described a radical son how he came into my office. It was I thought he was going to hit me because <laughs> I had given him a C plus or something. Right. <laughs> and I hated grading altogether. You know, I would have referred to myself in those days as a Christian romantic. Christian uh, romantic. Marxist revolutionary. It's very, whatever. Christ, yeah, I, yeah, Christian romantic. So it's sort of embarrassing now. But anyway. So That's I not embarrassing because it's part of the whole equation, so David. I gave this you can't lecture, be embarrassed. which I thought, I was like to 175 students, and I, I just thought that was, you know, like they cast me out. And right. And... Uh, then I, I, I went to England to work with Bertrand Russell and wound up working for Bertrand Russell. Then I came back to Ramparts and Peter was there. And Peter, he, st- he never forgave me for that. <laughs> <laughs> for the C+. So I would be walking, we had all these cubicles, you know, it was like editorial offices. 
And he would come around the corner and say, Oh, I am bound upon a wheel of fire. He <laughs> <laughs> was my harshest critic, Peter. So, but you became... I learned a lot from him. I, I, I you know, for all my literary background, I, I couldn't write um, a narrative. I was always analyzing, a Marxist. Right. You were thinking, thinking, thinking. You weren't storytelling. Yeah. I learned from Peter to do the storytelling. What were his influences, uh, if you recall? I mean, I'm I know Peter was very close to the chest. Um, uh, to his wife, to everybody. He just was very compart. Then lies. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I met him uh, once, long, long back in my one year in DC. When uh, actually, you also you actually, you also came during that year for the 50th anniversary of Atlas Shrugged event. I remember um, running into you and uh, it, terrible writer. You don't like Rand? Have you read The Fountainhead though? I, it's a, oh no, The Fountainhead, not Atlas Shrugged. Atlas That's the Shrugged one. Atlas Shrugged, Atlas Shrugged is over the top and. More ambitious. But I thought the movie was really good. Well, the Fountainhead mm. is the one is the is the book because that's where it. She actually, uh, she mapped out the entire apparatus of the the kind of car, a liberal oh, cartel. Brilliant. I, I, yeah. You know, I, but even but I'm saying even as a literary achievement, Fountainhead yeah. works. Yeah. Uh, you might find it to be. I, I don't want to push well, anything the, on you. The, yeah, that was from the, the characters make speeches. They don't really talk. Right, there's a lot of speeches. Fountainhead, there's only a few speeches, but it's it's much more... Well, I mean, even when they're tighter. talking, they're speechifying. Right, they're speechifying. But Fountainhead is a sat, is much more satirical and, uh, and successful in its satire of exactly the way the kind of cultural operators operate. I, I wrote it, yeah. I mean, it, it really, it nails the last 10 years. I wrote a tribute to Peter. Uh, is he still operating in Counter Books? Peter's dead. Oh, he is. He died of leukemia. Oh, I'm Actually, sorry. Actually, he died of the chemotherapy. When was this? Recently uh, or? Two or three years. Oh, it's recent. Yeah, I'm sorry. I really miss him. I don't have anybody to talk to. He was, is he your close, was he, uh, other, he and Ed Snyder, I it was another interesting relationship yeah. you revealed. Yeah. Ed Snyder, the I mean, owner Ed of the had, Flyers, Ed owner Ed of the 76ers. Such a huge life, and was like, you know, I, I actually wrote about how, yeah, like, I don't know, 15 kids and grandkids, and then everybody in the sports universe. Right. So. Yeah, and he turned you into a hockey fan. He did, and when he died, I had lost interest. Of yeah. course, the Flyers lost too. They lost. They lost interest they as lost well. Their, no, they kept. They're, they're at the bottom of the. I mean, I know enough to know where. So they you are. keep track. You I, keep track. I, I'm not a good sports fan because I hate it when my teams lose. Well, that's 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 every sports fan. I no, mean, oh my God, my son. Your son's a. Stayed in with the Raiders, after. Tuck rule. Oh, the tuck rule. Yes, the tuck rule. My, my son will watch that, and my grandson, his his son, won't watch it either. I it's just watched such, it, by the way. Yeah, I thought it was great. I just I watched. Yeah, I watched that. I uh, 
recently because I have, in addition to this, I have a sports podcast where, which is mostly cultural, but we watch old games and kind of riff on the memories of that they yeah. that they uh, produce, and we watch that one. <laughs> and I remember watching it live as as well because at the time I was sort of yeah, was half-heartedly watching. a Raider fan. But you know what happened after that was they, that was the end of the Raiders for twenty years. They went to the Super Bowl. The following year, the lost. Following year, and their center didn't show up. He was crazy. Oh, I forgot that part of the Super yeah. Bowl. No wonder they got blown out yeah. so badly so, by their ex-coach. Because that Gruden yeah. went from was traded to Tampa Bay. Yeah. Then he slaughters them in the. And then, did you see how he got fired uh, this oh, year? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping those depositions. Oh, you're helping Gruden. I'm hoping. Oh, you're hoping. Yeah. That they expose the bastard that runs the NFL. Do you, he's a bastard? I don't know much about him except that everyone hates him. Yeah. Well. Well, I mean, I thought it was a travesty. Goodell. Huh? Goodell, yeah. Do you know? Well, you know, according to Gruden, or the Ben is very close to uh, Mark Davis. Mm-hmm. But according to them, everybody. There, you know, what he got dinged for was what, I don't know, politically incorrect. Yeah, emails, emails from 2011. Okay, they singled him out, though. Of course they did, because they wanted to get out of his contract, probably. Yeah. Well, well, I don't know. Oh, well, right. Well, does Mark, but, did, but he, was he singled out by Mark Davis or by... I can't the, remember why I hate Goodell. Well, everyone hates him, though, so there's got to be a reason. There's got to be, it's, I mean, every, every single person on every, every side of the aisle. Here's the thing. The reason you stand out from all the other conservative writers, when I talk to, when I talk to young people who are just getting into, their, you know, the phrase red-pilled, it's, yes. yeah, this is the kind of the occurrent phrase for awakening to political reality from fantasy, yeah. fantasy land. And I tell them all that the one book to read in terms of leaving the left, the modern left, is Radical Sun and all the other essays you've yeah, written about it. It flowed out of me. That was a where. Well, that, when I did The End of Time, that also just flowed. But you spent 20 years of, you were sentenced to 20 years of boredom before writing Radical Sun as you kind of charted from your, your oh, the black paper. It wasn't boring, but I'm using the Leonard Cohen song. Was, that's what I'm quoting. That's why I said that. But well, I was clinically depressed after Betty got killed. After Betty, it was not fun. No, when my marriage broke up. You. It was not fun. But you, you also had this. This was your crisis of realizing that everyone around you was not committed to anything like the truth, and. Yeah. Yeah. It's, do you see, I mean, it seems like the parallel that right. we see to this day in terms of how uh, political crimes are, uh, crimes are covered up for political reasons and realities are ignored. Yeah, yeah I have to live with a certain frustration of, I can't stand it when like, uh, one of the, these Republicans, Democrats are soft on crime. No. They're pro-crime. Right. <laughs> I, I, I have to live with the frustration of everybody on our side. It's sort of waltzing around 
they're all so polite. It's, and I, I, I think that's structural. I used to think it was just character logical. What do you think? Why is this? Why do you think there's such structural because weakness? Because leftists, they're always reimagining things. They live in a fantasy land of this future that's impossible and has never existed and never will. Um, and all they focus on is tearing down whatever exists, the present. Um, they get up every every morning, and that's all I think about. They don't give two seconds to how you make a society work. Um, so they're very negative. They're always giving up indictments of the world as it is. You know, um, conservatives are past-oriented. They want to know what's worked. They understand human human character is the problem, and what works with this troublesome being. Um, and they're believers in the, the the Constitution is really a summation. You know, you can call it classical liberal if you like. Right. But it's Which is your really, politics? Your really classical what conservatives are conserving. And the one thing that the founders hated, feared the most, was faction. It was divisive. So there's a tremendous emphasis in, not only in the Constitution, but in the structures that created, like the Electoral College, to produce compromise. If you do what I'm doing, well, I, let's put it, if you do what Nancy Pelosi does, um, you're destroying the possibility of a democratic society because you're demonizing your opponents. Right. You know, if they're racists... Or they're Nazis. You don't deal with them. Or if they're Nazis, yeah, yeah. You then, then you're justified in assassinating so, them. So when I say the Democrat Party is a criminal party, I always give chapter and verse. You know, and the easiest one is that, you know, well as Obama's saying 20 times on TV, I don't have the constitutional authority to do and then does it <laughs> to let the DACA people in. Right. And then when Biden flies them, the illegals into the interior of the country in the middle of, why did he do it at night? Because he knows it's fucking criminal. Um, yeah, I like to think that conservatives could get more bite if they would just stick to the particulars. This is a criminal act. This is the Reichstag fire on January 6th. It's unbelievable to me how, how to touch with reality. Well, the they party, which is, is true of leftists always, but... Well, it's taken on a much more, um, I think, manic level state and because with the combination of Trump and all that they did to neuter him at every, every you know, cost. I'm, Ron, did you read the attack on me by Ron Radosh and Saul Stern? Ron Radosh? I thought he was your... I did not read this. Oh, I thought Ron was your... Con. Friendship of 65 years. I, I met Ron in a communist youth group. <laughs> I was recruiting people to write for the Daily Worker. And Ron was there. I said, I, I was 12. That's how long we know each other. Yeah, they attacked me for questioning the uh, election. Oh, God. I said I was, oh, it's, 
it's it's worth reading. I'll have to read it. I, I, I title it my best. My former friends have joined the fascists because they called on the IRS to fucking shut me down. You believe that? He did in that article. Yeah, they said. Has he lost his mind? Yeah, we have to stop David Horowitz. <laughs> Has he know. lost his mind? I mean, I I don't I I lost pretty much all respect for Ron. In his, it wasn't just that he was an anti-Trumper, but he, he, you know, I tried to engage him, and he he never respond. I mean, he he would respond by sending me somebody else's article. Never, oh God! Never engaged. So he. It sounds to me like he just became a a boomer. I don't uh, think he's very smart. Uh, I would. I would. I would venture to I guess. I wouldn't trust his books after right. my experience with him. I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but well, I mean, I can't blame you. Well, and we had a, a, you don't do that to a friend after sixty years. I don't care. Yeah, what well, you think. we had this went on for a couple of years before this article, and I, you know, I had just written him and said, "Are you all right?" Because I, he, he was silent. Um, and the reason he was silent was he was running an attack on me. I see. I see. Uh, it was that bad, a betrayal of friendship. Anyway. So he's been watching a lot of CNN and MSNBC probably at home. He's with the, uh, what the hell is it? The bulwark. The bull, oh God, another one. And, the, and, and I mean, you know, we can get into that a lot because it's just an endless wor- wormhole of uh, disgrace. Bill Crystal was a shit. Bill Crystal? Never could get the time of day from him. He he just had this snobbish attitude. But uh, I, I I I would never have guessed that he could have sunk to the depths he did. I guess you know, some people were right about his uh, kind of craven cynicism back during the, even the Iraq War days, where mm-hmm. he opportunistically was. I mean, he seems to just be this this extreme opportunist. Total. I mean, it's so funded by leftists. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, his his Lincoln project is a is an absolute fucking All disgrace. Of them, I, uh, I don't know if you read my Trump books, but uh, I haven't. My grandmother has read it maybe five times. Blitz. The big the, no, the big big agenda, which well, is the, the big one. agenda. That's the first. That's the first. There's Those more. Books sold like a million copies. Did uh, do you have a relationship with him, Who? with Trump? I mean, have I you? He called me once because I got. Uh, I, I I can't have much of a relationship because I can't travel. Right, you can't go to his Florida. Con. I have too many. Uh, what do they call them? Dogs. No, <laughs> no underlying conditions, conditions or whatever. Yeah. Oh, all oh, for the because of COVID. You were, COVID. Yeah. Yeah. If I got COVID, I, my son, who's stepson, who's a, a, a resident MD. Said I'd be dead in two weeks. Oh Lord! So, so you have to be careful. So I, I pretty much live like a hermit. Ugh. No, look at it. But it's beautiful. This is a glorious. Uh, yeah, it's like a deer park, and we have all these flocks of deer that come through all the time. And as much as you hate Atlas Shrugged, it brings to mind Galt's Gulch that you've moved here. There, you know the the she. That's what she called the community that the built that the brilliant people yeah, I secret. Can't pretend to have read that book. Uh, anyway, there's <laughs> there's a part. I like the movie. Yeah, you like the movie, but this is like you're in Galt's because Gulch. The movie, the, the, the key figures are trains. 
<laughs> right. Which is, which and is appropriate. Right. I thought they did a great job. It's an job. industrial character. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I, will, I will say that Fountainhead um, really feels fresh. It's a great, the, movie, the movie is also almost psychedelic, just the fact that it exists. I watched it. I watched and read it recently, by the way. Ed Snyder funded a lecture series by Iron Man at uh, Ford Foundation University. No. Oh, okay. Ed, 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 did I say Fulmer? No, no. Ed Snyder. No, Ed Snyder. You said Ed Snyder, yeah. Yeah. And I, I was going to ask you about that because you mentioned in the book that he was an Ayn Rand yeah. Uh, yeah. supporter, I guess. Yeah. He's made all his kids. He said, I, I, if you want to go to college, you've got to read this book first. Did, what what I, university? I'm not going to support you. Right. Which university was it that he, that he brought University her to? University of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, okay. So he knew her then, personally, yeah, I'm getting friends. Right. That's wonderful. It's too bad that, it's too bad he's not around because oh, he God. sounds like an ti- absolute titan of a... He was great. And was he your closest friend he in the... It, no, because I, I, I just had this crazy life. Right. Um... At least he lived in Montecito. We used to talk. Well, I, I described it pretty accurately right. in, the, in the book. We used to talk after the games. I love the portions where you're texting him. The you're texting him your enthusiastic uh, or, or angry reactions at the end of the game. I'm like, oh yeah, you you were hooked. You got. I mean, that's what I'm a sports fan too. I've been since I was a little kid. Yeah. I've abandoned a few of my allegiances, but I've kept others because I can't get them out. It's too late at this point. You know, I'm, I'm doomed. It's mainly UCLA sports that, that I'm sort of mortally uh, wound up with. Mm. But uh, uh, I could tell that it, whatever, whatever, motive, whatever depth of friendship got you to care about hockey was real because you were actually all yeah, in. I really like the game I went to. I think they, they won in overtime. And won the conference championship was and you were in the box <laughs> yeah no it's great especially if you feel like personally my dream before I got I discovered books and writing and politics and the whole show was my dream was to own the Lakers one day I had a little business sports card business trading card business when I was like in middle school before before all this that was it that was it my son wanted to buy the Raiders Oh, that would have been great he if he probably can. He he should. I'd love him to buy the Raiders. I I am my I'm friends with some hardcore Raiders fans. Yeah. They would be very excited if a if a Horowitz. Well, Mark Davis is a hoot. I mean, we went we went to the Bronco game uh, here, and uh, <laughs> I. I can't remember. Somebody missed the tackle, and he said he shouts out in the box, "Fire that guy!" <laughs> <laughs> he was an entertainment. Did you know his dad? Did you know Al? No. Al Davis. Um, he was also a hoot from all. No, but my, you know, I, I raised my kids in in the Bay Area, so they were all Raiders fans. Where are you based now? L.A. Still, I, I'm going to die there. I'm going to. I mean, really? I'm doomed to L.A. Yeah. Leave. <laughs> Do you know the, the taxes no, no I know it's crazy and not only that but the homelessness is if you live where I live I live in Little Armenia in East Hollywood it's just uh, it's just piles it's, it's, of, it's yeah it's, it's offensive what they've done it's, it's, it is offensive because I actually love the city in a, in a sort of tortured way fuck <laughs> he won't make noise if I let him in okay so 
I, I think that the end of time is one of the most spiritual It's definitely the most, so is a point in time. Yeah. Well, I'm going to talk to you about them more, but I like to take, I like to take the scenic route to... I've done nothing to harm you, little one. Okay. It's funny that you have this, uh, the Anne Leibovitz, Susan Sontag book over here. My wife got that. Uh, yeah. I just read reread the anecdote of her eighteen thousand word contribution to Ramparts in the sixties that oh. assaulted your your budget and everything else. It's funny how often she appears in these stories. Susan has to go now. Susan, <laughs> did you ever? Did you? Did your interactions with her extend beyond that? Con what she wrote that essay that took up all your budget? I talked to her on the phone once, and I—I I don't know how it was brought home to me, but um, you know, she was a Shearite. She was a what? Sheer. Sheer. Sheer has connected her. To right. Parts. Oh, you talked to her back then in the sixties. Well, I find it kind of offensive that she got all this credit for saying that communism is fascism with a human face in and 1982. Also, yeah, and then she also said that white race is a cancer. Right, right, yeah. I mean, and she also disavowed her, her only good work, which, is, which was a strange move. Her only good work was Notes on Camp. I mean, the, as a last... That's her first thing. Her first thing, yeah. And she disavowed it later on. But anyway, you know, it gets much worse than Susan. Even it gets worse than Susan Sontag. But it's funny because Camille Paglia, who has the best defense of you I've ever read, I don't know, if, I'm yeah. sure you remember the, what yeah. she wrote in Salon. Yeah, it was really nice. I mean, I think that I wanted to like bring that Camille Paglia's defense of you up because I think she identified why you're going to be remembered over everyone else from this entire... I mean, certainly more than any of the conservative writers of this, like, of your, you know, peers. Um, and it's on the left. I could never pledge the club that was New Left Review. It, when all, you well, they were Oxonian snobs. Right. They, I, Barry but, Anderson, all of them. That's one of the funny things when re, I, I reread as much of Radical Sun as I could in one day because I, to, to, to just, ref, you know, it's, one, it's a book I read in high school, by the way, before we ever met. Um, I, so it was a very important experience to read that book. And it's the book that everybody has to read if they want to know what the hell, like, the last six years was about. Even beyond that, what, really what the last hundred years is about, because your parents and their experiences in the Communist Party and you're being at the Rosenbergs execution as a boy. You saw them get executed. No, 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 no. Uh, you were just sat outside. It was a demonstration. Oh, it was a demonstration. I thought it was like at the... At 17th Street in New York. They were up in Sing Sing. They were up, okay. You were, but but it, was an, it was very dramatic. It was horrifying. And everybody's screaming. And I don't know, how old was I? I was 14. And then the cops rode up on the sidewalk on horses. Oh. <laughs> that was, you thought you were in a scene from a, a fascist takeover yeah, right. situation based, based on your upbringing. Yeah. Do you have any second, third thoughts on the whether that was just apart from the fact that they were guilty, yeah. which we know they were, 
guilty of what they were accused of. But in terms of the execution, do you feel like it was a mistake by America to by Eisenhower, or do you feel like something? Yeah, I believe in the death penalty. My daughter, I my late daughter, wonderful person, she was against the death penalty. But I, I think it's important. You know, well, if you're a hundred percent certain that they did it. Are you, I mean, I mean, are you, is your position? I don't know, you know, I go on Ray Dosh's book and now I just now you don't, don't know trust <laughs> Ray Dosh. But, uh, well, the fact they deliberately orphaned their kids, I mean, that's just, for the cause. For the cause. For horrible the, cause. The horrible it's, cause. And people never learn, that's uh, no, the same thing keeps happening again and again. That's the interesting well, thing. The, the people have no awareness. And, you know, it gets me. This case of Boudin thing. God, even Fox News, when they reported it, they mentioned that the, his biological father is a murderer. But they get to Kathy Boudin, they just said she went to prison. Right. <laughs> to protect her. I mean, another thing that keeps repeating is your experience with the Black Panthers, which does yeah. the, with the B, it's just BL, the BLM is just that entire. I was one of my. I wrote this in Radical Sun, but I, I, I knew that the people I, I actually wrote it for people like myself to save them from the same experience, um, and I knew it would never be read by them. And the, the guy who murdered Betty is the head of strategic planning for Columbia University. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's, it's an eye-opener that way. The guy who literally put, who put the bullet, who yes. did the actual murder, yes. which was commissioned by, which was commissioned ultimately by Huey Newton. It was all Huey. Yeah. All Huey. Not er, Erica was sort of just the... She's a crazy person. Yeah. Her character is a very... Really pops from those pages, by the way. Both you have you caught. Put his feet up on my desk. <laughs> That's what she would do. There was a room full of school, not not the, the kids sit at teachers' school desks, all jammed together. You know, just the store room. Right. And they made us wait. We had to wait to meet with Erica. So. Did you mention his name? The murderer's name in the... I don't think you mentioned his name in the book, in Radical Son, did you? I mean, in the first edition. I don't know. It seems like it was more... He wrote a book, Will You Die With Me? Will You Die With Me? And he, he's the one who led the assault on the, on the black bookkeeper when they tried to assassinate. She was the chief prosecution witness. And um, he inadvertently shot the guy he, he had asked to come with him will you die with me oh, okay but then they murdered they paralyzed from the neck down they shot him in the back of the head didn't kill him and buried him in, in near las vegas and some tourists heard him crying from under the earth oh god oh i remember this yeah, yeah. Uh, he, did he ever spend time or did he just go? He did. It. He 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 was on the run, uh, and of course hidden by all of our progressive friends as a political prisoner, and then he got lonely, on the you know. So he he did his homework and realized that 
murder, and particularly if you're a progressive murderer, you got four to seven years or something. Right. In Vacaville, completed his GED, uh, got a scholarship to NYU. Uh, it became the, uh, I don't know, something like the city. He was an assistant to the president of Manhattan and then became the strategic planning guy at um, what the, what the fuck is strategic planning at Columbia University? I don't know. It's just a lot of money for him. It's just a lot of money to sit in Prestige. an office and draft diversity. You know, they gave Kathy Boudin, she put together a whole program in the social work school. Everybody on the faculty was a convicted felon. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I mean, but, you know, the thing that gets me is how low grade the New Yorker is. You know, when you mention Susan Sontag, these people are the worst. And Remnick, he wrote a decent book about uh, the end of the Soviet Union. He did. He actually was in Armenia. But he's a complete shithead now. Well, no, they all, they all are, you know, something I've noticed. I mean, Su- Susan Sontag, as troublesome as she was and as the New Yorker was in those any time, it's, it's, that, that was a golden age compared to what they are now. Now they're just an indistinguishable rag uh, uh, from well, any of the other, but the arts, same with the Atlantic. But the arts, they they still. I mean, I wouldn't read there. Well, sure, yeah, the but even those are tainted by. They have some good. They still have some good writers. Yeah. James Wood is good. The left is it's so debased. It's it's take it's seeped into everything. I read nothing. I, my favorite magazine was was the Atlantic when Michael Kelly was the post Michael Kelly years in the two thousands. Michael Kelly who got who died in Iraq, the editor. They they had they were publishing great stuff. Um, I mean, I didn't. That's the back of the book for uh, the New Yorker. For um, I mean, I, even I did in the Blitz. I, I I just did the Trump derangement syndrome. Right. And I I picked uh, Remnick Kakutani from the oh Kakutani Remnick and. Uh, God, I haven't even read her reviews in forever. Chris, the guy on, on CNN. Oh, Como? Oh. Yeah. I guess you could throw Ron Radosh in there, too, because it sounds like he, he suffered from the same thing. If he... Well, but Ron, like I say, really disappointed me. He, he, he doesn't have the intellectual means to make the arguments. At least make the arguments. Well, TDS is not... Is not compatible with intellectual beings because the whole point is it's a it's a it's a it's just hysterical reaction that doesn't have any. I know, but we were friends for sixty five years. It's it's a shame. It's a total shame. I want can I want to talk? Let's talk a little more about Peter because I feel like he's a, such an. Peter was a thing. big influence. I, I wrote I wrote about it, and he actually moved him to tears. Peter, um, I guess he didn't expect it. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, well, you wrote several I, bestsellers I together. I struck him the wrong way from the outset. From the beginning. And so I just, he, he would give me shit all the time. But he, he, basically by working with him, I learned how to write. Um, and it, it was good to have a critic. I mean, if you can handle it. <laughs> yeah. No, this is a very familiar relationship to me because to have this like 
uh, intellectual comrade, writer, mentor, brother type of situation. Um, yeah, he saved me. Well, I wrote that in, in Radical Sun, I think. I, um, I was reeling from the... I, I knew my marriage was over. My uh, Penny had got killed because I didn't see anything. I was blind. Uh, or she was blind, <laughs> I have to see. Um, and so, so Peter really... I did the interviews for um, Rockefeller. Rockefellers, but I, I didn't do the, he did the writing. I, I, uh, I mean, I made big stabs at it, and he would pluck out things, but I could never have written that book. Well, you still, at the time, as you write in Radical Sun, you still had this um, ambition to kind of uh, intersperse the narrative of the biography with, intellect, with an intellectual sort yeah. of... Yeah, I described how we did it. I, I had written a memo at Ramparts about the Rockefellers controlling everything. Everything, yeah. So Peter thought, oh, this guy, I can, I can do a book because Peter wasn't going to waste his time on uh, Rock, Rockefeller's corporate empire. But, uh, but I did learn. I did learn. He didn't speak to me for a year after that. Oh, I, wrote, I wrote about all that in the yeah. No, but it's interesting to hear you reflect on it. And but, you know, he talked to April about Peter. I mean, he wept when I was um, in operations. It's odd that he, he, he would be the one to die from the, the cancer. Because I had, I had two big bouts with cancer. I still have cancer. Um, he was a good friend, Peter. How, what's and your generous guy? After at the, what's interesting is that not only were you writing partners, but that you were—I mean—to be for that friendship to have survived the transition from being radic, from being new leftist. You know, I mean, you were more of the ideologue than he was, from what I can gather. He wasn't an idiot. He wasn't an idiot. What was his? He, that's the interesting he, he thing just, to me. He was just—it was character. He didn't like them. They, he, we used to have these arguments where he would say, "It's it's mischief. The left is driven by hate." And I. But he. What I was, was he doing there? What was he doing? I mean, he was working for Ramparts, and he he was kind he, of at he, a remove at the same time. Like, was he? Oh no, no! He wanted to punish people. Oh, he wanted to punish people. Yeah, yeah. It was a whole different level. Oh, he was uh, like individuals. He was there to punish. Yeah, I didn't like their ethics. Um, I'm trying to think of an example, but um, I yeah, like when we overthrew Sheer, I did it to save ramparts for the revolution, <laughs> and Peter did it because he hated she she was a prick right. she was he did it for justice but then he stayed i mean i think i had an influence on him that way when he went off to do encounter books this is so typical peter he said he was tired of playing second fiddle in a one-man band <laughs> <laughs> and i i was bewildered by that because i didn't i didn't feel like i uh, 
I'm not the type. I'm not the empire building type. I didn't demand. I, I, I still don't fully understand the thing. You're, well, that's because you probably mistook, you had a, a Lear Horowitz confusion, you know, from, your, from that first well, lecture. You know, we came, he wanted, uh, I, at the end, he kept wanting to do the biographical thing. He was a literary person. And I was tired of it. Um, so I did interviews on the Roosevelt book. And then, um, but I, I, I went, wanted, I, it was my idea to form a, an institution to, so we could find, I was still radical. I don't like managing people. It's a pain in the ass. Well, some people enjoy ordering. Yeah, but those people aren't writers. I mean, how, you can't enjoy managing people no, and sitting alone. I'm, uh, I've done this comparison in various books, I think. The Hedgehog and the Fox. Right, the Isaiah, the Isaiah Berlin's... Uh, I know one thing. You're the Hedgehog. Well, yeah. That's the Isaiah Berlin... Yeah, uh, and I get, I, get, I get a lot of satisfaction out of when the words are right. But those words are going to outlast any you know, yeah. Daily Wire or... Uh, I, I don't think about that too often because what lasts? I know because you, you feel like nothing's going to last in, the, in know, the long run. I don't know what, what will last or what won't. It's when I think of all the people, you know, when I, when I was... In my 20s, I mean, a name like Eric Fromm, everybody knew that. Of course, yeah. Now he's totally forgotten. Well, he's most... Not, not radical enough for the radicals. Right, not radical enough for the radicals. And and too radical for... For, for anyone else. Um, but it's, it's it, it, you know, people... But this is what Polya predicted in her defense of you. I don't know if you remember her words. But she predicted that, which is what I loved about it. That as a that as as herself a, uh, a, a, a an archaeologist of archival material culturally for of, of the centuries, she felt like she has a sense of who will who makes it into posterity, and she identified you as the one who will make it into posterity from the entire generation of 1960s radicals and beyond and. As long as it's not Hayden. Well, <laughs> I think, I mean, already, who, Tom Hayden, who's, who cares? I mean, but what, who's going to read a Tom Hayden book other than as an artifact of the time? He, which, he censored his own books, you know that? No. The Trial, which was about the Chicago 7. Uh, the last chapter was about Establishing liberated zones, armed liberated zones. Oh, like chap, uh, like a United, chap in the United States. And then when he, be, you know, ran for office in the Democrat Party, he had all those books removed from libraries and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> and wasn't he also a spy at some point too? I, I don't know. Oh, I thought you. I thought no, the, no. He disguised himself because he was a coward. Oh. He sent all these young people out to get their heads cracked. Oh, and he, he kept them sides he, he put a mask on and whatever the hell else. Right. But he, he was really 
looking back, it was the turning point for me about the left. We were standing, um, it was People's Park. Uh, Homeless encampment now, by the way, I was just there. They never built the dormitories? They've never built the dormitories, and guess what? It's all homeless tents. I'll show and you. I'll send you a picture. It was beautiful when the left took it over. They put grass in it. It looked really nice. But um, I'll send you a picture, and you'll see what But the day came when the university wanted to repossess it. And when the cops started firing tear gas, I, got, I was standing right next to Hayden, and I said, oh, Jesus, this is very dangerous. I, I'm really concerned. And he figuratively put his arm around me and in his most avuncular fashion said, David, you have to understand, we have to lure middle-class kids into situations where they get their heads cracked and that'll make them radicals. That type of thinking is alien to me. But Everyone knows a radical that's is... That's who the leaders are. Right. All of them. Huey, all of them have that cynicism. Huey, what, what, how do you um, pro, how do you reflect on the fact that Huey, unless it was just pure charm, like made you feel like he uh, like he was listening to you? Because this is a theme that returns in. Oh, I wrote about it in the book. Yeah, um, but I'm curious what like I I didn't get what this why he was doing. He listened it other to than me. I was just an intellectual. I had all these ideas. Who was the guy who was going to spell? Them? Who's gonna? Uh, but he, but he found. I mean, he connect. You guys connect. You were brothers in some way. Well, <laughs> my friend Robert, who was my Panther friend, he said that I I talked to him about this, and he said he he, he had a pimp's talents. He knew how to play people. So here's the intellectual. I I described this in the book. I he, he would call up. Call him, call him on the phone, and if he wasn't in, there'd be a voice would come on, a female voice, and say, what was his title? The servant of the people isn't in. Mm-hmm. Leave a message. <laughs> and I summoned all the courage I could at the time and confronted him over it. I said, you can't build a, a de- you know, I thought we were building a democratic socialist. <laughs> uh, with a message like that. I said, it sent chills on my spine. The next time I called him, the voice said, Huey isn't in, leave a message. But he was, you, he had to be get, get, gaining something from your idea. Your I raised idea. a ton of money when no, right. I bought that school. I yeah. raised a, no, you did all the shit for the Panthers that you, just, yeah. you described. But you also, he, I'm saying personally, he must have been as, a, as almost like a, a counselor. He had ambitions, you know, to get the PhD, you know. Ah, uh, yeah, so he thought... He, he was, that was weird. Was there anything about him that... about Huey or anyone else in the Panthers at that level? Uh, Bobby Seale, Eldridge Cleaver. Was there anything about them that you can say was good? Anything. Not really. I mean, they're all criminals. I'm just curious, you know. Yeah, well, my friend Robert was decent. But what was his position? Do you remember? In the he was assigned to... He was my keeper. Oh, he's your keeper. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was intelligent. Um, I think he tried to warn me that I was in way over my head. I was decent of him. There were decent people in the party, but um, 
no redeeming qualities at the top. In in the most but from no, the most. No, I mean Bobby Seale is he's a liar. Jeez. I I got out of my mouth. I I I put in. The, I think I put it in a book. Problem with Bobby. No, it, it was uh, is uh, Jimmy Carr said before he was killed. He was a gangster. He said that the Black Panthers was a gang, but it was harder to play, harder to get in the leadership because. <laughs> He didn't put it this way, but you had to have the mumbo jumbo of Marxism down a little bit. <laughs> the mumbo jumbo gumbo. That, that's my. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I you know you're you have no um, uh, obligation to find a redeeming quality in people who murdered your friend and covered it up and and then made you. Uh, oh, but they were you. all yeah. It was scare time. They were bull whipped. I mean, it was pretty bad. You know, they were doing it. They, I described that scene where they had, I can't remember the entertainer's name. They did a concert to raise money for the kids' school. And uh, a drug dealer, and they were all sitting in the penthouse. And the drug dealer comes up, and Huey used the entire proceeds for the school to buy Coke. Oh my God. And. This was a well-known entertainer. I, I'm sure I put it in the yeah, book. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh. And uh, he just started to protest. That was for the school, and Huey held him over the balcony, 25 stories up. I think that's what... It's too bad. I, I, My father, I just... I, I have this scene in radical son when my father comes to see me and I got I had uh, I just left my family I was utterly miserable but I was um, that I wasn't out of my gourd I, I took pride in that mm -hmm. <laughs> I had this uh, I showed him around the house I had bought and uh I said, what do you think? He said, you lead a charmed life. <laughs> my father was very jealous. He said that he was jealous of, he said, he From said. the he, day I was born. There you were born. But he. Yeah, the left in power is weak people. My dad was weak. He had unrealized ambitions of literary ambitions as I. As yeah. I, yeah. He was a good teacher. I found out, well, I put this in the book too. Arnold Beitschman was a pretty well-known militant anti-communist. He attacked Simone de Beauvoir. He was a journalist. Mm -hmm. And he happened to have um, been in my father's class in the 30s. And my father in the 30s, at one point, he went on a tour of the United States to attack U.S. militarism <laughs> in the lead up to the Second World War. <laughs> and uh, well, my father was, he was pretty eloquent. He was, his letters are amazing to you that and, you publish in the book. lucid, yeah. And uh, um, so I asked him, did my father try to indoctrinate you? And he said, no. He said he... 
announced that he was going to do an extracurricular class after school to teach journalism. I was the only one who showed up, but he went through and he did it, and he taught me to be a journalist. So you can't. And find, he became a journalist. You can't find a leftist today who would take that position. So he and he, he, it's it's an amazing. I know I'm, I've become renewed. They all, they all wore suits. Right. The, the other your your family wore the well the no communist. the whole left you look oh. at the May Day parades they're back all wearing then, suits they're all wearing suits and ties it's <laughs> remarkable that you grew up in a communist ghetto in New York I mean just the, just the, the idea of that that you you grew up in a neighborhood that was over- we had FBI outside the house watching everybody who came in my mother. I'm sure she never got a traffic ticket. My mom was so law-abiding. But they were hiding in the basement. An East German communist, whose brother was the mayor of East Berlin, <laughs> and, and who the government was trying to deport. <laughs> but yet, but you, you never felt, the funny thing is that you don't feel. So it was good the FBI was outside our house. <laughs> Those are the good old days for the FBI. Well, the good old days. Now, now, now they put American uh, uh, protesters in jail. Part of the Gestapo. Now, but you didn't feel any of that was over the top. Uh, uh, did you feel any of the anything that happened during the McCarthy era? In reflection, I, did, I defended my parents in, in Radical Son um, because partly because of the Beichmann incident, right? But also because. You don't want to fire people. I mean, if, if they were corrupting the classroom, if they were trying to do what they do. Right. I mean, they've gone so far beyond that. Oh, I'm going to change your little kid's gender and you'll not won't find out until we've already chemically castrated them. I mean, it's mind-boggling what's going on now. But uh, sure, why, why, why shouldn't they uh, be able to teach? My father was a good teacher. So... Yeah. Same with the the Hollywood issue. I think that you know there was like this uh, publicity. I know, you know, well, the, yeah, the publicity seekers, the congressmen. Yeah, they do that. They do that every time. They do that just like they're doing now with the shootings. I mean, it seems like any time there's a any time there's a spectacle to be seen. Woody Allen said, in "Any old politician is a cut below a child molester." Although it's interesting, he keeps that image. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Well, I'm a Woody Allen defender, so I, I mean, I'm not. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I've watched those things. I can't tell. Uh, I don't. I don't accept them. I don't think they were done it's fair in good faith yeah. at all. None of the Me Too stuff is done in good faith, and some of it may well be true, but it's been. Um, it's 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 been it's a campaign that. It's been an interesting campaign. I don't know how much you care about it because it's kind of. It's it's affected a world that you're not, uh, you know, that well, hasn't been a, kind to you. But. I did our Hollywood thing. Hollywood people have no backbone. Do you know, I mean, there was one day at the Academy Awards when two people maybe had pink ribbons, and the next year everyone had a pink. <laughs> And then Whoopi Goldberg came on years later and said, why are we wearing these ribbons? And the next year there was none. <laughs> that is the herd mentality. Yeah, no, right. But you've had some, you've had relationships with conservative Hollywood people like yeah. the Wednesday morning couple. Did any of them Void. stick out for you? Void, of course, is a 
yeah, outspoken one. Yeah, but they're, they're, first of all, I don't want to say anything. This is not directed at Void, mm -hmm. but it's a degenerate community, so they all have things to hide. They used to be able to hide them, it seems, more... Um, I mean, it's, a, it's you know, uh, as, I mean, a, as a fellow I degenerate... I can't... Maybe when I'm dead... <laughs> You, you're the model Jewish husband. Yeah. Loyal, libidinous. Yeah. I, I'm amazed at the two. I don't know where they get... You know, so they're empire builders, though, in a way, as we were talking. They're Without great the, judges of character, which I am not, obviously. Well, you're a trusting person, despite what people they, think. They, I don't know how they do it. I'm very impressed with my two sons. It's, I, I think it's... I'm impressed with the fact that you have... Uh, that you're, despite family division, which I'm all too aware of mm -hmm. myself, uh, thank God it wasn't geographic um, in my case, but it could be we were both in the same city. My parents split up when I was four. And mm. Acrimony was yeah, the defining feature of my childhood. Just don't, don't put the kids in between us. It's a hard thing for some people to understand, especially women. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, when did, when did this guy just got in trouble? Just got fired. Sports guy for telling this joke. Uh, no, not Gruden again. Not All women are bi. The question is whether it's polar or sexual. <laughs> My new book is called the next one, not the, not the final battle. I've already written the next one. <laughs> Can't help myself. I, I mean, you're, it's you're called Lu Luther's Gift. It's about Martin Luther and as the creator of modern democracies. That's a very interestingly timed book because because of the current. There's been a lot of drama in very narrow online circles about Catholics. <laughs> And it's going to be very fun to, to have this. Luther, yeah. And the Catholic Church doesn't come out too good in my book. Well, it's, yeah. They're, they're front line on the abortion issue. Uh, and global warming and Greta Thunberg and all these other things. I mean, Greta Thunberg's always being pictured with Pope Francis. and. Oh, he's a communist. <laughs> he's acts like it. No, he is. I, I have one, I will say in his defense, of one, one defense is he recognized the Armenian Genocide in 2014, oh, which opened, good, made yeah. it comfortable well, for Well, it's us. a Christian country, isn't it? It is. Not, that doesn't mean anything. That, does it mean anything to, to anybody? Did it mean anything when they attacked Karabakh last year and uh, mm. just shattered, shattered? The, the, I'm amazed at the way the Muslims have managed to insert themselves into the whole Western world. It seems like through the vessel they of Turkey never, and Qatar. They never have to answer to anything. Yeah, that Erdogan is a piece of shit. Ah. It's, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's endlessly frustrating to see not only the fact that Armenians, a Christian nation, be meaningless, but in a sense be negative because people don't, it doesn't excite the humanitarian impulse. See, I had to tell you. The cleaners, when I lived in Las Vegas, the cleaners was an Armenian family run it, ran it. And I read, what's that book about Ararat? Um, 
uh, uh, anyway, I read that guy's book. Uh, uh, Franz Werfel's book, or there's no, there's no. Passage to Ararat. There's that one. Okay, yeah. And I was very impressed with the similarity of Armenians and Jews, <laughs> and I made the mistake of this. She was maybe she was sixteen or seventeen. I said, I, I said, I said, you know, I said the Armenians are because. I'm, my name is so Jewish, so I uh, very much like the Jews. And she looked at me and said, the Jews killed Christ. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, there are these... There are these uh, I loved the uh, Gibson movie. I got called a disgrace to the Jews by... Uh, what's that guy in New York's name? Um, fuck. Pete. Oh, fuck. You would know it instantaneously. It's one of these very loud, shwooly bow-teach. <laughs> Said I was a disgrace to the Jews for... <laughs> for liking Mel Gibson's movie, for liking Passion of the Christ. I thought it was brilliant. Um, well, first of all, to see it as anti-Semitic just because the priests are playing their historic role, which they did. Right. <laughs> It's ridiculous. But then, you know, the guy who carries the cross, what was it, Simon? You know? Yeah. And I thought the, the brilliance of it was, how are you going to dramatize the story of a son of God who gave his life to take on the sins uh, you know, of mankind when the sins are so horrendous and all that gore that Christopher Hitchens whacked Mel Gibson for, I thought that that's it. That You've got to do that. You can't just have some minor little whatever persecution. Right. <laughs> so it was his fainting at the cross. Yeah. Mel Gibson is crazy, but he's a brilliant fucking director. He's a brilliant director. He's got such a he's got such a visceral understanding of cinema that. It, it it's conquered all his problems. I mean, you know, he he was welcomed back ultimately because he's such a effective. Yeah, Apocalypto is amazing. But I'm I'm sorry you had a you had an anti-Semitic moment at the it's Armenian okay. at the Armenian. It hasn't affected my view of Armenians. Good, uh, good. <laughs> I hope not. I you know I call Armenians the New Testament Jews because they were. The well, first. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. They were the first I have, Christian nation. I have a correspondent. His name is Yaakov. I don't know the guy from Adam, but he exposed to me what filled with hatred for Christ. I'm so, I'm, I'm just floored. He writes, I don't answer because <laughs> he. I mean, he's a, always sending me useful political things. Right. But Jesus. Actually, when I was 18, I gave a sermon in a Lutheran church, not knowing who Luther was from Adam. Right. But um, I was drawn to that story. And uh, I bring this up. Well, you were, you wrote the book about Luther. Oh, so when I wrote, Chris Reddy asked me. He said, "I think it would be a good idea to have a Jew write about the persecution of Christians." Right. So it opened my eyes to how central Protestantism is to the creation of America. Bill Donahue, Hugh, the head of the 
You know what I'm talking about. I've, he's a the Catholic. Right. Yeah, he's, he had nice things to say. He, and they all send me books about how the Catholics contributed to democracy, too. But Of course, it's such a... Yeah, I know. It's 90, so I always feel a little bad, but 98% of the settlers were Protestants. Yeah. You can't get around that. No, and they also... I mean, my daughter would tell me about how the Jews invented democracy in the Talmud or something, but they're not, not enough of them to shape America. Yeah, but well, there's also the, the line that the Jews invented communism, which I don't think yeah. is fair, but... It's a heresy. What's the name of the guy? It's a fourth century Catholic priest. Uh, for oh, August Augustine. Uh, Augustine was the good guy. Aquinas is later. No, it's the it's the it's the whole communist idea that, that human nature is good, and if people just lived, if they were good Catholics, they could create the world, a just world. No, they couldn't. No, no they can't. Because they're not good. Well, but that sounded like that sounds like a perversion of the most uh, one of you know the the, the simplest God, reminder of Christ. My head is like Swiss cheese. Uh, don't worry about it. Uh, well, I don't worry about it because when I sit down at the computer, it, it all it comes cl- back. You need a blank. I need you. I, I just set up a laptop, and anytime you you're at a loss for someone's name, you just look at that blank screen, and it'll come to you. <laughs> weird. Um, it's just so weird. But. Uh, that, that I'm interested. That, that's interesting to hear. Also, you had a bad you had a bad uh, encounter with an Armenian in the sixties. No, I, Mr. I, I don't. I I think it was amusing. Oh, okay, good. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's a sixteen year old girl, but you know, yeah, I know. a little sophistication would be nice from my well, perspective. <laughs> Jesus yeah. killed Christ. Well, it's it's L.A. But <laughs> well, my wife's neighborhood, they had Koreans held marches. Chanting the Jews killed Christ. <laughs> How many people? Three million. Small. Wow, it's, it survived. It wiped off like like this. Well, but then there was that war. I don't know if you followed the war in Karabakh. In November 2020, during the fucking pandemic, Azerbaijan attacked the uh, independent, unrecognized Republic of Karabakh, which is kind of like this. Armenians had fought to preserve to 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 basically stay alive when the Soviet Union fell and but it has been unrecognized all these years and there's been this negotiation mm-hmm. Azerbaijan attacked with Turkey's weaponry and Israel's but that's you know don't want to go there got most of it back shattered the army killed the why did the Jews do that they're they're allies with Azerbaijan for their own interests and they're fucking they, Muslim communists I know but they get they buy weapons and they send oil to Israel, and uh, it's a tough world for little countries. They try to be ecumenical on the right, uh, unlike almost. <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed at the lack of any sense that it's a movement on the part of conservatives. I think everyone is just locked into their little um, their little uh, mission statements for whatever their little organizations are. To me, it's not, you know, you're, you've always just, you've not, you haven't cared about such limitations. You'll just, you'll invite well, anyone. I a lot of people there and start. I, I, uh, and I, I've often been disappointed. 
Not that I regret. I'm like Candace Owens. She, nobody heard of her. And I put her on at the weekend and she got big. She got, did she, did she ignore you? Funkening. Yeah, I asked her to uh, promote my last book or interview me. She has a, I don't know, something with Prager. So she's got like an exclusive, why, well, why didn't she interview you? What's I her have problem? no idea. She was too busy. But let me ask you if you care about a few characters that we've both. Okay. One is one would be Matt Trudge, and I know you. I know there was a break for mysterious. No, there wasn't a break. It went like this. Um, why did I know that it was important to get a lawyer when Blumenthal sued him? Oh, I, 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 I had. A couple of people try to steal my operation, literally. Like your center, your yeah. I mean, just just like overthrow you from the board. Just a weird. Yeah, I had a lot of trouble that way. Um, so I I hooked Manny Klausner, who was my lawyer, and he's uh, one of the founders of Reason. Uh, I, I I set up a meeting with Drudge to try to persuade him that he needed a lawyer. And he did take Manny. Um, and that worked out well. I think uh, uh, Blumenthal, is a real prick, got, got a dollar. Uh, but I, I did a campaign to support. I paid for the lawyers. It was over $100,000. And I did a campaign, I maybe raised 50. But Trudge, without talking to me, Manning told him that it was bullshit. He just decided that I was taking money that belonged to him. Hmm. And so he just cut me off totally. That was how our relationship ended. And then, of course, he against Trump or whatever. I didn't even follow what he did. I think he just sold, I think he, I don't know about, uh, to me. I think it was opportunistic. He sold off his website, I think. I don't think he copyrights it anymore. It's been, it's easy to tell that he's not um, doing, mm. it, it's not him since. Around the time that he quote unquote turned on Trump, if whether that was him, whether that was part of the deal that uh, whatever he made, I don't know, it's all shrouded in mystery, but I wondered if there was any update in your relationship with him because he was I, I've been out of a relationship with him since I defended him right since he <laughs> took umbrage at you raising money to compensate yeah. for the money yeah Manning said I mean you know, he knew it was ridiculous I I can't remember what I had to pay but lawyers are pretty damn expensive right especially yeah I, you know Man, Manning was he's a Pretty damn good lawyer. What was your relationship like before the blue? Was it was that the beginning of your relationship as well, or did you know him before that? Who? Drudge. No, I didn't know. I really didn't know him. I I don't even know how I got to the point where I he, he, I guess he was based in L.A. at the time. He was. There's a you know the, there's a series called American Crime Story Impeachment by the American Horror Story guy Ryan Murphy that's on TV. Mm -hmm. uh, it, they actually. I don't know what you'll think, but it's an actually well done mini series about the entire impeachment thing, in which Drudge is portrayed, in which Ann Coulter is portrayed, 
uh, warmly, both of them, shockingly. And Linda Tripp is sort of the protagonist of this of, of mm-hmm. it all. And it's quite good. I mean, you might enjoy it. You might enjoy revisiting it. It's you would it's surprisingly objective. Huh. Except for Hillary, who's kind of put in a saintly not in a saintly way, but in a sanctimonious way, I guess, would be better, more mm-hmm. accurate. Otherwise, it's quite interesting. It's a good, it was a good, and I, I, I had a... Th- I like Barry. Barry's great. Barry's great, and I love the current season, especially. Oh, it's on it's the end? Third season, yeah, yeah, it's on. It's almost, probably almost to the end, yeah. Oh, great. We'll binge watch it. Yeah, and I, 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 I'm especially impressed with Barry, because in this third season, you know, they've taken to such a... Hater is really talented. Hater's great, but but our, our but so I love um, Fonzie. Fonzie, yeah, oh, Henry Winkler's amazing in it. Yes, yeah, I agree. That's been one of the best shows of the last four years or whatever. Whenever it first came out, I, I, oh, this I, mayor of East Town is very good. It's I so keep hearing it's depressing, good. but That's, it's good. Yeah, yeah, she's very good. It's 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 grim. She has a grim life. <laughs> right, which but now you. You, okay, so let's talk about End of Time. Um, oh, before End of Time, Andrew Breitbart is another character that we both that that. But you reunited with when with you. I was at the event where you reunited with his. Uh, what was it called? Abraham Lincoln Underground, whatever. David Zucker invited me. David Zucker. And I can't. It was probably Friends of Abe. Friends of Abe. That's what I. I'm sorry, I I didn't remember the name. Friends of Abe. And Andrew said I couldn't come <laughs> because the press would see that David Horowitz was there, is there, and it would destroy the revolution. This is the way he talked. It's revolution in Europe. I said, uh, nobody's going to notice me, Andrew. Um, so I showed up because Zucker, Zucker was on the board or whatever. So I, I came and Andrew said I had to get off the bus and go home. They, you know, you park and then you get on the bus. It takes you, I forget the name of that rich guy's estate. And everybody on the bus knew, knew me. And everybody, and they all were happy that I was, it was great to see you, David. You, of course. I'm, and he kicked you off the bus? He had the security guy come up on the bus and haul me off the bus. They, I, and I'm, kind of stupid this way. I'm very impulsive, so I, I threw this guy's arms off. I mean, he would have slugged me. You're right. So, yeah. And Andrew defended that. That's the saving the revolution. That's the only explanation. I don't think there was anything else, because I didn't... Anyway. But so, eventually you you forgave him for that, because you... I always say I did. I had an event that did a tribute to him. Yeah, because he was doing good. Then, well, he did bad things. He created Huffington Post. <laughs> oh, I forgot he created the. Fu- I forgot he was part of that. Yeah. Um. Whatever. Well, you know, but his energy was also whatever. instrumental in the Trump. I mean, yeah. Are you? Were you ever um, in contact with um, Steve Bannon when he was in Hollywood? Yeah. 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 I made the mistake of inv- uh, inviting Radosh to an event at Steve's uh, headquarters there in Washington. And Radosh, 
And Bannon said, "It's a good with water." Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So Radosh over and over again attacked Bannon. It would, an article would appear saying Bannon is a Leninist. So enjoy. Thank Thank you so much. Do we, honey? What about forks or something? Oh, yes. So, so God, the radish thing is, a, I, I missed that whole plot line. It's really terrible. And really terrible. And that hurt. So just he was, just, well, he he just, just wanted to lose a lifetime friendship over shit. Yeah, over not, over, well, over being, it sounds like he just became an MSNBC, uh, I know, it's uh, crazy. you know, watcher. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, I, crazy. I'm questioning, you know, and the, of course the answer is, the Democrats have questioned every Republican presidential victory since 1980, probably way before that. Yeah. That shithead Raskin led a delegate, 12 of them, to, to decertify the Trump election of 2016. Well, they, they spent four years decertifying the Trump election. Exactly. And yeah. framed I know. the entire state. I, I, Radosh would never let me engage him. I never responded. That pissed me off more than anything. It sounds like he's just a victim of not to not to, not to, to absolve him of responsibility, but it it seems like he's just a, a victim of the entire uh, Trump derangement uh, kind of uh, campaign. Well, I, guess it's, I guess you can't exist in Washington unless you buy into it. I don't know. But what does he have? What does he have to? What is his? Oh, Why should you live in Washington? To say the IRS should look into this. Right. Now look here, Joe. Quit acting smart. Stop being that old brazen sort. Don't you go sell this country short. No, no, Joe. Just because you think you found a system that we know ain't sound, don't you go throwing your weight around. No, no, Joe. Cause the Kaiser tried it, and Hitler tried it, Mussolini tried it too. Now they're all sitting around the fire, and did you know something? They saving a place for you. Now Joe, you ought to get it clear, you can't push folks around with fear. Cause we don't scare easy over here. No, no, Joe. you do the things you do you getting folks mad at you don't bite off more than you can chew no no joe because you want a scrap that you can't win you don't know what you're getting in don't go around leading with your chin no no joe now you got tanks some fair-sized tanks but you're acting like a clown because man we got yanks the mess of yanks and you might get caught with your tanks down don't go throwing out your chest You'll pop the buttons off your vest. You're playing with a hornet's nest. No, no, Joe. You know, you think you're somebody we should dread. 
just because you're seeing red. You better get that foolishness out of your head. No, no, Joe. And you might be itching for a fight. Quit bragging about how your bear can bite. Because you're sitting on a keg of dynamite. No, no, Joe. I just did an episode about Joan Didion. And I was very amused at her. The, the, the quote from her. Yeah, the quote from her in Radical Son. Yeah, that was perfect. She, smart lady. She was a smart lady. She be, she her early work was her best. I think uh, the, the, at the time she wrote that Huey Newton piece. That's that's sla- her first her slouchy towards Bethlehem, and White Album books were the best. Uh, and she really it, it's evident from from especially as you know re- reading Radical Son how she saw through all the smoke and mirrors of of that community just no I wasn't afraid to say so no uh, did you interact with her in the later years at all I know she was friends with Ben Stein I don't know if he was ever part of your yeah I knew Ben I was on a flight back when the engines of our plane went out he was terrified we couldn't stop talking it's no. funny you write the end of time, and I, I, it occurred to me just now when I reread. Well, I reread it in Mortality and Faith. Mm-hmm. I had first read it when it came out, which was like 2003, yeah. which is basically my first year of college, so I'm 18. And I remember at the time I was both very impressed by the the literary uh, depth of it, which you know I knew you as a as a political as a polemicist, even as a bi- biographer. Yeah. Of your of your political journey, but the meditative aspect of it was a surprise to me, and I was equally also, I think, spiritually, you know, uh, not mature enough to be able to fully appreciate what you were trying to say, because you have to that mortal shadow that you describe, which enters the corner of your eye sometime in middle age hadn't yet entered the corner of my eye. It has now. It has now. So it's a different experience oh, reading yeah. it now. You were, how old were you at the time you wrote it? So at 60 or so? Because um, it was, whatever, 20 years ago. When you said it was 2004? It came out in 2003, I believe. So, so you wrote it before then. 39. You did the arithmetic. Yeah. Okay, so you were you were um, you were about yeah, you're give or takes around sixty. You were in your early sixties when you wrote it. And uh, boy, thirty nine. What a year to be born! Just just symbolically, that you were born in nineteen thirty nine. Yeah. You know, the Auden poem is about your is is the year you were, you were born. Jeez. Yeah, thankfully. Yeah. Radical son born in nineteen thirty nine. You write this. You write. A book in which you face, you directly are facing the abyss of of ones of one of the of extinction. Of, of extinction. It's more than an abyss, it's, right? <laughs> well, an abyss, yeah, an abyss is almost has more clarity than what yeah. we face. But it's a very brave book, and you and and you don't have a dark i mean you don't you, you don't it doesn't come off darkly at all you have a certain peace about yeah. it starting at this point I mean, do you have any advice for me <laughs> yeah just nobody gets out of here alive right <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, you had a great line in there. I have to see if I saved it, but there was a great line in which you talk about how you, you, you still, I'm assuming you still, despite your, uh, your researches into Martin Luther, you're still an agnostic, I'm guessing. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wrote um, about this incident where the plate. I was going to ask you about that too. So just to describe well, it. My so, wife is more spiritual. Well, wait, but you had a deli. You had you were in a restaurant, and a, and your plate up rose from the table and smacked you in the chest. Like that. There's no doubt about it. You saw it, and she saw it. And there's no way it could have been the wind or whatever. Right. So what the fuck? And you didn't put your elbow on it. It was just went from the table to your chest. Yeah. It's uh. It's. It's, it's, it's Hamlet to Horatio. There are more things that happen in Earth than I dreamt of right. in philosophy. I, I, I'm a, um, comfortable not knowing. I don't think anyone... You know, I had... I, I, was I, I, don't, I don't, for example... You know, they have these shows where people died and they come back and they tell you everything they saw on the other side. Of course, yeah, they have a full report. They're always jer- there's always such journalists, you know, these... Yeah. Shh. <laughs> we can go upstairs. Did they go? They must have gone. I think I heard a door close. Yeah, why don't we go upstairs? Okay. Did, did, was Bernie Sanders part of your childhood in any no, way? No, I hated him the minute I first heard him open his stupid mouth. When he got elected to Congress, or I couldn't believe that somebody that dumb would be in the Congress, which was silly. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like he was from the same community you grew up in, except yeah, he was in Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, more or less. Yeah, you're a Long Island. Flores, Flores. West. Oh, you die with me, baby. Flores, oh, that's right, you did, you did mention his name, Flores Forbes. Yeah, in my Shakespeare book. Oh. But I... This is your only copy of Probably, yeah. The, the Secret Underground David Horowitz Shakespeare book. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, I, I believe that a, a serious effort must be launched to uh, establish your literary reputation. Because, you know, once when the battles are fought and when the battles are won or lost, what remains are what remains is well, the truth. It'd be my fondest wish. Christopher Hitchens. Before we get back to end of time, I think that's one of the best things I've written. Two Christophers. The two Christophers. It's a beautiful remembrance. Well, not remembrance. It's a beautiful because at the time you wrote, he was still alive, and you didn't even know that he had that illness. Uh, and you published it, and it was yeah. I mean, he's one of the. I mean, he's. I met him a few, one time at Wednesday Morning Club, where you invited him to speak. He was an entertainment. He was an endless entertainment, and he loved to entertain. And he was in flight from it seemed to me the most fundamental uh, event of his life. He never ever until his biography until Hitch twenty two. He never talked. He never wrote about what happened to his mother. No, but and it, it's bizarre. Well, I wrote about this in the, the essay. That here is this incredibly powerful figure in his life. That romantic side of it. 
And yet, when she dies, what you get is a, I don't know if it's a chapter long, but a whole section that sounds like a sociology paper on suicide. It's so... Yeah, it, it clinical. He, he, he was so detached in his approach can, to that. He couldn't handle it. How do you pronounce your last name, by the way? It's not easy having a name like that that people, you know, hmm. nobody ever knows how to pronounce. Um, and also, growing up, everyone called me Alex instead of Alec. And that was endlessly frustrating. My first two published pieces, Alex with an X, devastated me. Now I look around, now I go places, I find other, I find people named Alec, and I don't like it. I, I want to be the only Alec in the room. I didn't. <laughs> After all that. And now I told you there's a whole organization. Yes, that's why, I, that's what freaked me out. You told me I did this thing for Alec. I'm like, what? What is going on here? Yeah, life has an interesting twists and turns. But your relationship with Christopher Hitchens is one of the warm, is one of the happy and, you know, ish yeah, endings. It was weird. It, it showed his character. I mean, he's done things that I, are indefensible, like mocking Jerry Falwell in his death. <laughs> <laughs> well, he liked mocking people when they died. He liked he was, mocking them when they were alive. And when they were alive. I, you know, I'm okay with that consistency. He had a certain... Well, he mocked Mother, Mother Teresa, Bob Hope, uh, Jerry Falwell. Who else did he dance on? Bill Clinton. Well, Clinton, Bill Clinton's still alive, but... <laughs> when oh, his career know. died, I guess. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, when, he's, when they, he had a thing... He had a series of obituaries directly mocking the dead. Yeah. And he took pleasure in that, and that's okay by me. I was his I was stunned when he when I, I met him at the uh, L.A. Times event, and he was very very warm because I was used to his savagery. Right. Uh, it speaks very well of him that he didn't. Yeah. Whereas Todd Gitman is not incapable of that. Well, I will say that I was going to say it speaks very well of him, but it's also you've defended him. And I did, but so had, what? He, yeah, but yeah, but so what? But well, it's the human thing to do. I mean, you, I'm, I'm, I'm inhabiting a universe which has people like Radosh in it or Crystal. I put Crystal on. I, I promoted him. I promoted Molly Hemingway. <laughs> I gave her an event at the, uh, where was it, at the Four Seasons. And, and she won't, won't give me the time of day. I think the problem with this entire world, which is the reason I fled from it at the age of 19 or 20, um, at, which is, I, I knew that for all the difficulties of the, you know, show business and cultural world, especially if one has the convictions I have and, and can only disguise them so much because it's just part of my world. It's just part of the way I see reality. Um, it's for all the problems with that. I did not want to step into this, the, uh, an arena where f friends backstabbing friends, just like leftists do, just like, I mean, just like uh, we've seen over the last several years of, of the woke kind of terror, but just out of, 
considerations over prestige and and mm. reputation and power and like who's in, who's out, who's who's hot, who's cold. I, that kind of thing just repelled me so much about that world. My one year in DC, I got so fucking depressed. I wanted to kill myself in DC. Mm. I mean, it's a one industry town. It's, it's a one. But, and all I do is talk about it. But the, but it drives me crazy that I mean I have right now I am meeting, I know, having the kind of uh, the kind having the kind of vision that I believe also animates Polya's view. I I know I am meeting a, a a world historical figure, and the fact that you're the people that you helped, you a world historical figure helped. Not only because you helped them, but just by virtue of the fact that you're there contacting them, whether that you helped them or not is, a, is a, even immaterial. The fact that you helped them makes it a human issue. It just it drives me crazy that they, that yeah, they it, turn it blind. And there's a sequel. Mike Finch, Mike, guy runs my shop, Mike Finch, invited her to a weekend, which I couldn't attend because of the COVID. And she did another promotion. We did a promotion for her next book. And she, I, mean, I can't imagine doing that. You just take advantage. Conservatives are pussies, they just are. When I came up with the title for, my title was Hating White People is a Politically Correct Idea. And this was in 1999. Right, that's what my timing white. is always. You're 20 years ahead. Off. Yeah, doesn't do really good the um my publisher was a division of simon and schuster was basic books maybe and i i my editor said david we will never publish a book with that title because it will piss like he didn't say this in the same sentence but it came out afterwards it will piss off Henry Louis Gates and Cornell West. Oh my God! And I, I knew I, I, I would have no New York publisher. <laughs> and Tom Spence had this little publishing company in Texas called Spence Publishing, and he took the book on. So I owe him big time. Hating Whitey is is the twenty years ahead of its time. BLM. Yeah, George it's all there. Right, it's all there. there. There, nothing else needs to be read that afterwards on that issue. Um, you're still. I recall Henry Louis Gates being nice to you on Dennis Miller, like a long time when you were both on Dennis Miller. That's possible. He, he, he invited Ben to do a seminar, um, a hip hop seminar. <laughs> At Harvard, and Ben's and Ben and made the I, case that hip hop is capitalist. Yeah, Ben, ben said to me, "It's capitalist, and uh, rock and roll is capitalist." I said, "You're going to say that?" He did. <laughs> it's an interesting point of view that I, others, other rap fans have tried to. I, I'm not, I'm not uh, anti-rap. I just it was never my thing. But my some of my friends are really into it, and they've been trying to convince me that it's the pro. It's the most. Yeah, it's pro-cap. all about business. It's all about making money. Yeah. <laughs> About making money and gathering, uh, gathering hoes. Did you ever watch the TV series Twin Peaks by David Lynch? Did you see that? Yeah, um, it's it's an interesting 
parallel to your career because it, because the it's a I think it's a brilliant work of art by the way the toy including the final part that he made a few years ago uh, for Showtime and the 25 year the fact that it came back 25 years after the last words which was see you in 25 years and there's this there I, I see a similar cycle in your career of these storylines that recur in 25 year intervals you write hating whitey 25 years before the blm george floyd thing happens uh the, the your episodes in the with the black panther i mean your your, your arc with the black panthers and with ramparts yeah. recurs in weird ways the characters recur well there's nothing new under the sun no not even under the several suns that that uh, that you've uh, created and procreated, but it, it, it's a, it's just a it's a real experience to, to to read your your life's reflections. So we're in end of time. You're facing it when you wrote it. It seemed impossible, or maybe you had just surmounted a potentially terminal health scare. I don't think I did. Oh, there yes, was I had my cancer. Yeah. But I survived that. You survived it and you kind of, you lived Especially a tough life. I still have that cancer. So It's a looming thing. No, it's uh, prostate cancer is slow. It's a slow developing thing. They always tell you you better die of something else first. Provided you... You know, yeah. Tell me operation or whatever. Well, I mean, you have this heartwarming uh, April, September, whatever romance with your wife, April, that is such yeah, a profound... two unlikeliest people, the two of us. She's a believer. Well, that, that doesn't play. You right. Because I'm, I'm, I'm very ecumenical. As you right, yeah, you're, right. So that, that's not an issue. No, it, it's... It's more characterological. Uh, well, right down to, she's always saying it's too hot in here, and I'm right. always cold. Right. That which is which is a role role rever gender rever reversal. Yeah. Usually, it's the other way around. Yeah. Usually, for it's too cold for for the woman. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a great through line of of all the reflections that make up mortality and faith. Your partnership and how much you love each other, yeah. and how invigorated you seem to be by her presence. She's a wonderful, warm, loving person. Not 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 easy to find in this world. Not easy to find. You had a great phrase in End of Time, where you're talking about, where you mention, you know, that despite your agnosticism. And this, you're, you have your, you would search your way through the final passage through your like your heart would search its way through. You expect your heart will search its mm -hmm. way through the final darkening passage. That really stuck with me. Mm -hmm. Reminded me of a Leonard, another Leonard Cohen line: "Bitter searching of the heart." And I wondered if that's if you know you you've been in position I'm sure in the hospital where. You probably went to sleep one night, weren't sure whether you'd wake up. Yeah, it was when uh, they, they had to re... That, that 
slow-growing prostate cancer turned into a virulent neuroendocrine cancer. And I had a, had two, two bags. Mm-hmm. And uh, this this one didn't start immediately. <laughs> that was I had a lot of anxiety over that. Is that gonna kick in? But uh, I tend to underestimate things. That's like I I told the story in, in the end of time that when I was diagnosed, this porter doctor came to the house with her little bag and, and said that um, my PSA had jumped from four to six and that I would, that, that was serious I and mean, that I had prostate cancer. I didn't believe her. I said, there's something wrong with your little kid. <laughs> it's so stupid. So I, I tend to get blindsided by dark events, although as you get older and you go through more, you, you can't really brush things aside quite like that. So I have so many vulnerabilities now. I just but they don't seem to slow. They don't seem to slow no, down. No, like I said, I get. I can do five hours and. Uh, what what is your work route? How do you do it? How do you? Pre- I do it early because well, when I still have the energy. Um, Wake up at like five. I, well, I probably do, but it takes me a while to get up. I'm just just hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's, it's like you say, out of the, it's more than out of the corner of your eye. I, I'm aware of the fragility of life. So, Does it um, accentuate your appreciation of the good moments? Beauty. Beauty. That's Wallace Stevens. Death is the mother of beauty. Death is the mother of beauty. And of course, I don't have any testosterone, so, so I tear up really easily. Well, that's 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 great. You have the right to tear up. I think yeah. at this point, after all these, after all this blood. I, yeah, I kind of. Yeah, if I hadn't written that, those books. I, I would be tempted to write them now. Right. Because would, would I'm, I'm very aware of the passing of things and the poignancy of that. So you're, I feel like the... And then I have dogs and dogs. It's one of the great injustices of the universe. Dogs don't live very long. Yeah. So... But as you noted, they, that their, their fragility is sort of this endless education and mortality for those who yeah, own them. that's the way I looked at it. But I, 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 I still see it that way. We just lost a boxer to a heart attack. Oh, I'm sorry. They, the boxers have a, are particularly vulnerable. I would never buy a boxer again. They have, they get cancer a lot. They short-lived. Yeah. What a beautiful dog. But, I'm sorry. Yeah. And we lost it. We had a Chihuahua, Lucy. Yeah, Lucy's and a major. She is. 
Lucy's a major character in the immortality in a phase. She 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 died at twenty just recently at twenty one. Wow, that was very hard. But then I saw on the internet that uh, twenty one, the Chihuahua. There's a Guinness Book of Records Chihuahua that lived twenty one years. That's the longest oh, the wow. lived. So she, she was great. That's when we first got her. Huh. There's, um, you know, I've always, I've always admired, going back to the music that I admired as a kid, which was kind of like these old blues men who were performing into their 80s, mm. and I, I was always inspired by that. Of course, when you're a kid, well, when you're, what, any, 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 at any age before the Mortal Shadows appearance, um, old age is not doesn't mean the same it's sort of almost like it's a it's a class of its own you know your grandparents you look at grandparents you look at old performers and you think oh these are cool old people that's who they are you don't think of them as ever having been young ever having been even your parents age your age yeah you just look at them as their own creature and 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 I and as a kid, I always thought they were the coolest of all because they seemed to be they seemed to have the the best disposition. They seemed to have a lot a lot of energy. They seemed to be the least bothered by silly things, mm-hmm. you know. Um, of course, they're always if they you have nice grandparents, they're very warm to you and they spoil you, and that biases you to old people. Yeah. And I felt like you know I don't know there was something about it. I, I wanted I wanted to enter, be in a kind of world where. I, you would get in a certain way you would get better with age until whatever <laughs> not considering whatever happens at the at the end I do you ever have a do you feel that sense of I guess constant I don't know even know what the word to use is because it's not it's not constant maturity but I, don't, I mean, do you feel, I guess, a an accumulating grace to life? Yeah, you could put it that way. I, you know, my, I wrote, I wrote about this in, in uh, End of Time, but if you're a writer, you, you get better if you work at it. So I, I get a, I feel in command that way, even though my body is falling apart. <laughs> but um, in command of the page. How do you, more specifically, how do you feel, let's say, since Radical Sun, which was your major literary uh, post-leftist, post, uh, post being a leftist, because I mean, you've had, uh, just so I want to talk, I want to mention just so that people let's hear it. In my last episode, um, which was in Berkeley, which is where the picture in People's Park I'm going to send you, um, in the introduction I played a little clip by Mario, uh, what's his name? Savio. Savio. I played a little clip. I just like looked for speeches. I thought I was just going to play a little just to give a sense of the Berkeley, you know, tone. I played the clip and I read it. Those were your words that he was, he was basically adopting from student. Yeah, Your very first that, book. That's what brought him to Berkeley. That's what brought him to Berkeley. You're the one who inspired Mario Savio. Oh, yeah. 
to go to Berkeley and start the free speech movement yeah. and used in his most famous speech your words. I got a really nice email out of the blue from a guy um, who read, in, in that book we did Destructive Generation, the first essay is on Faye Stender. And he had a horrible incident, I, I forget the details, but of somebody in the left murdered by you know, a panther type. Right. And uh, he took, it was just a letter to thank me for writing that because of the impact it had on him and this woman. He, re he read it out loud to her. So that's the thing about writing. You write, you're kind of alone and you don't realize you know, how many people are out there being affected by your work. You never know, especially if that's it's an it's an interesting mystery. You have like the you have these like invisible, uh, in a way invisible. You know, I mean, invisible friends or people who understand you, and you have no idea who they are. But that that connection can be established as briefly as with a letter that indicates they got what you were saying. Or maybe they didn't, but they were stimulated. They were stimulated somehow. Their own uh, view of what happened right. to them or to me or Faisen or whatever. Yeah, these uh, invisible wires that connect us when, when we write or create anything, it's part of what make, excites me about. It's part of what attracted me to that whole, you know, questionable way of living. <laughs> Did mortality and faith get marketed at all? Because it's a, because you're, you're. I think it's another Regnery book. Right. Yeah, it is Regnery. I did it because I thought the individual volumes that it's made up of would get lost. That you know. So I put it all together, and because I, it is autobiographical, it's. It's very different from Radical Sun, isn't it? It's much more philosophical than Radical Sun. Yeah, political. it's not a political biography. Right. I mean, Radical Sun had its own introspections, as it were. Right. But, yeah. You, I mean, it, it, you know, the thing about Radical Sun, I mean, this is what's so frustrating about... I, I, I admire... I love Christopher Hitchens at the end of my days um, as a figure and as what he just, you know, what he, what he was. Um, but it's frustrating that he could never write something like Radical Son. I mean, Hitch 22 is just, an, to me, Hitch 22 is just him babbling pleasantly as he would. Well, the, the, the first part is, is, is really autobiographical. No, it school, is. School days. Yeah, the school days. Yeah, when he describes the jerking off with, the, with his uh, schoolmates and those event episodes. I mean, he has a lot of... I mean, he, he, he's written a lot of interesting autobiographical things, but just to compare his... to compare the way he handled his story with, about his mom, which... It's not incidental to his hatred of religion that caused him to go on that atheism crusade, which annoyed everyone so much and got him all that bestseller money, but whatever. It was very annoying for me to have to deal with that atheism. Wasted. It's just wasted. Yeah, Christopher was gracious this way that uh, 
I invited him to the weekend. And when he was, well, I don't even know what stage he was in, but it had to be after he had that meeting at the mm -hmm. And he found a way to be, to make conservatives comfortable. He, he, he did his anti-Kissinger number. Oh. Because conservatives didn't like Kissinger either. Which is a contrast like that. Michelle Goldberg, I invited her to the weekend. And that, that was another thing about Ray Dosh and Stern. They, they try to invent a transformation in me because of my Trumpism. Um, so they said I used to be ecumenical at the weekend. And I invited Michelle Goldberg. She <laughs> opened up by saying that George Bush is the worst president in the history of the United States. You know, just deliberately mm -hmm. just right. provoking. All your donors, of course, are at this weekend. This is the weekend of your retreat for all yeah, your donors. Yeah, you Christopher be, you be was gracious. Right. But then others, not so, not so gracious. It's, that was a nice thing about Christopher. Yeah, he seemed to be, he seemed to be, in a way, generous. He, it's too bad he was a leftist. It's such a waste of time attacking God. Oh, we had an event. I, I, it was a fundraiser for the center. We had it in New York, and we had it at the Union League. And I invited Christopher to be the, to, to be an evening with Christopher, mm -hmm. with Peter and me interviewing him. Little did I know that that fall, when we were going to have this event, he was coming out with the book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And one of my board members, a Catholic, who invited her priest, oh who was a big intellectual figure in the, in the Catholic Church. And Christopher, it was one of the funnier evenings ever. He was very funny, but if you took him seriously and you were a Catholic, you, you would be really upset. As, so as the evening grew on, he got drunker and drunker. And the, that doesn't sound like Christopher at all. insults got bigger and bigger. And then finally there was this confrontation between the priest and Christopher. And it wound up Christopher was calling him a child molester. And uh, next day I got a letter from the head of the Union League banning us from life. Oh my god. <laughs> oh. It was a fun evening. It was a fun evening. I <laughs> wish we had it all on tape, yeah. That would have been great. I wish I would serve my little microphone. I mean, he was he was never sober in those debates uh, that you see on YouTube. His, his oh, but then, you know, like, that esophageal cancer, the, the, the two things are smoking and liquor, and his father died of it. It's very self-destructive. He was really young, he was like 60, 61. Yeah, he was 61, and the strange thing is that right before he got that, he had gone to the Stanford 
they had done a full examination of him and he had come out sh- shocking like a, fr- a full blood they did the works on him apparently at a high level he came out spotless mm-hmm. and he took that as an impetus to actually clean, clean, clean up his no no not to, no actually clean up his act right I mean this is right before the diagnosis he came up with this idea that okay he has a second new lease on life somehow he escaped uh, the uh, somehow according to these results he escaped he quit smoking I don't think he quit drinking but whatever he came up with a whole rep he started to take his weight seriously and work out he wrote a whole thing about this next thing we know he gets the cancer I mean just like the weird the weirdest the weirdest twist of the dreidel I think it's very sad to, to use the time he had to be with his kids I mean the duel with God you're going to lose it anyway. Yeah, it's not a win at all. To what end? What end? He, he never lost that idea that there could be a, a salvation, an earthly salvation. Through reason. Through reason. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but all libertarians have that. I wouldn't, uh, well, not all, but many. Not all, but I know many. How can you be a libertarian if you don't believe in reason? Well, I think you can, I think you can be a libertarian. There's, there's kind of two kinds of libertarian. Um, and I think one is mainly, one is simply to, to believe in individualism as a, as a, as there's no, there's just, there's nothing. Anytime you try to pretend individualism doesn't exist, you're kind of you're placing faith in some sort of earthly system, more than you're going to be placing faith in 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 a uh, cosmic system. You know, mm-hmm. you see this when people who do do. I mean, individualism is a Christian idea, as Oscar Wilde said. Oscar Wilde called Christ the first individualist. I think there's a lot to that. I, I kind of that's my way of looking at it as a. Christian libertarian, more or less, you know, I don't go, I don't bandy like labels around, but that's kind of my, describes my point of view. Some others I know, um, the idea that, yeah, I mean, the, the, the extreme Randian version where it's like reason, you're going to reason yourself into some sort of a perfect life is of course a delusion. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. That's Luther. My conscience is captive. That's how he defended himself with the diet of worms. Going to burn him at the stake. I, I'm excited about your book because I don't know, you know, any more any more about him than the most roughest, than the roughest, most basic, you know. It's complex. Uh, well, if you promise not to show it to anybody, I'll, I'll send you a copy. Well, I won't show it to anybody, but I'll be happy to read it. I, had a, I wrote a, an odd introduction to set it up because I gave it to a conservative friend of mine who's a, he's a big activist in the school choice movement. And he, 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 what it is is it's a book that shows how Luther provided the the, the basic things you have to have to have an individualist-based democracy, e- equality, inclusion, all that. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, um, and then it's like a, a history of democracy in America. I, I don't know if you're aware, but like the separation of church and state—that's Martin Luther. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that much I know. Yeah. Um, and this thing of the sanctity of the the First Amendment, basically freedom of conscience. The left hates it. <laughs> they left, the left certainly hates it. But that. Um, but the rest of it is is a is a a run through American history to show that this never was a racist nation. You know where the racism came from? Wasn't that Trotsky's term? What? Wasn't racism Trotsky's term? Didn't Trotsky no. invent the word racism or might? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um Yeah, well first of all all the slaves were enslaved by black Africans. It was an Af if there was a, an original sin, it's Africa's original sin, not America's. Because they just basically took advantage of a, of a black business. I hate to put it that way, but they were supporting black businesses, as they say now. Well, support I don't think black they thought of it that way. No, they were I... making money off black businesses, right? Um, So there was no racism attached to the original slavery in America for that reason. It was, I mean, the, the blacks had enslaved the blacks, so just taking advantage of that. And they had, it was the blacks who selected blacks to be slaves. It wasn't whites. The North eliminated slavery within 20 years. But the idea was so powerful that there was this large anti-slavery movement in the South. And the slave owners found themselves, this is the only time that slave owners historically defended themselves. They had to have a rationale for their business. Mm -hmm. So what was their biggest problem? Their biggest problem <laughs> was a declaration of independence that said all men are created equal. So they set out to prove that blacks were not equal. I mean, it's all up front in there. Mm -hmm. that, that was the racist part, not America. Right, the, it was, the, it was the, the justification for, for slavery. For slavery. Yeah. After it was challenged At, by Americans. And right. And it, it, it's just... It, it's just striking to me. There's no, I don't know, do you know of any case in the history of the world where one race sacrificed hundreds of thousands of its members to free another race? Of course not. Uh, the question was, of course, what people would say is, uh, well, they, well, it wasn't about slavery. It wasn't about freeing the slaves. It was about... Uh, yeah, saving the Union. Saving the Union. It was about consolidating power. Under freedom, though. Huh? Under freedom. Under freedom, but but southern people would complain. Forget the racist. Forget the anti-racist. Uh, the anti. No, but the, the. Have you ever seen Sowell's little thing? It's on the internet about the end of slavery. No. Okay, it took a four-year war to wipe out slavery in America. Then it took 60 years for the British, the French, and the Americans to send their gunboats through the imperial seas 
of the blow to wipe out slavery, to, to end the slave trade. And they were opposed by brown Muslims and black potentates in the British Empire. And what, when was that? When did they wipe out? So this whole moral case that oh, you know people just soak up is so far from the truth. Luther was a very devout Catholic, but the sale of indulgences just flipped them out or over or whatever, which is actually in the Middle Ages they believed you could spend 10,000 years in purgatory with slight torments for your sins. So the church devised this thing of if you make a contribution to the building of St. Peter's in Rome, uh, you can get time off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is so obviously, what it does is it substitutes the church priesthood for God. Well, God can save you. Um, so he came up with this phrase, the priesthood of all believers, that every the community of faith is people who believe in Christ as the as the path to salvation. And within that community, everybody's equal. So there are, I, I can't remember the exact figures, but there's something like 20,000 Protestant denominations by now. Oh, yeah. Because there's no established church and no, right. I don't know, priesthood. But that is... The, that's the radical idea in which American individualism and equality and all are based. Interesting. God created men, well, men create institutions. Every, every institution is corrupt by the people that run it. Well, yeah, because they're people. Exactly. Right. Well, that's the whole difference between left and right. That's why you believe in limiting the power of institutions, no matter. Yes, and that's why there can't be any earthly salvation. The root cause of all our problems is us. And, and uh, therefore, in order to, um, in order to reconcile the desire for earthly salvation with the reality of us, they try to engineer us into something else. And they think they can cure humans of being human. That seems to be the current, the current um, path. Well, that's it. You have to change human nature. Yeah. Which is so let's start with kindergartners and tell the boys they're girls and the girls they're boys. Or tell them both they're nothing. There's no gender at all and that they are merely, um, you know, ones and zeros. Like, doomed. <laughs> you know, they're, gonna, they're not, the, it's a, it, the cycles come and go. The cycles come and go. One can't. Um, I think one can't submit to to doom because what's the point? You know, we're all doomed in that in that sense. But uh, well, but I don't know. There it's, are surprise breakthroughs sometimes. She said that uh, every revolutionary must have pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Is your is the optimism of your will intact right now? No, my my head. I'm always optimistic in the head, but 
<laughs> I can also see what's going on. Just who remains among? Do you who, um, do you have any any of your old comrades? And I mean, I'm using that word. Leftists. No, right. Well, let me. Okay, let me put it this way. Have any of the old leftists, surprisingly, in more recent years, reached out to you to say something kind? No, not since Hitchens. Who's not really left? Well, Chris, Chris didn't reach out to me. I no, you defended him. Yeah, I you, bumped into him. But you also defended him defended proactively. Him. Yes. I, I and uh, and that whole period remind you know one of the things I love about hating Whitey era is that and this is a little bit before my time, but I went into the archives and you know, resuscitated it for myself in my earliest days of mm. awareness, which was the salon days when you were, you were writing for salon. attacked by Joe Connison. Yeah. Every time I wrote a column. Every time you'd be attacked. But then the fact that in that publication online, which was called Salon, you had a regular column, Camille Paglia had a regular column at the same time. The minute they put up a paywall, they kicked us off. Yeah. The, well, they became irrelevant at that point. Nobody ever goes to Salon unless it was like a Camille Polly interview once every three years, you know, after that point. But the fact that they, that you did, that could co- you two could coexist with whatever other, you know, leftist, whatever's, uh, yeah, Connison and whoever else they had at the time. And they had even maybe even a third non-leftist, if I yeah. dimly remember. I, I, it's like a, it's, it seems like a, the Eden compared to what, what came starting around eight years ago. Where any sort of cross current is gone, unimaginable, unimaginable, and as a result, you know, I mean, the thing, the good, the good news is there are, there have been real dissidents, quote unquote, in the sense of not just dissident from the political orthodoxy, but also from, also from the trappings of being one of being a typical conservative who must throw David Horowitz under the bus when it becomes career convenient. Yeah, no, I, That's I, another I, I don't think, no, I don't think it's as severe as that. It's just a thing that I, uh, well, you know, your call came out of the blue. I don't get a lot of calls. I don't get a lot of invitations. I, I used to be, you know, one of the main speakers for Young America's Foundation. I, they haven't contacted me in years. They're too busy finding probably, probably a roster of diverse conservatives to speak at their events. Conservatives yeah. are worse with affirmative action than liberals, I've, I've learned recently. We're sliding without noticing our own decline Heading deep down We're hanging on to Sweet nothing's left behind Deeper down
watching any comedy or anything like that yeah I, I you know I watch music videos my other son is huge in the right. music business so you watch his. But his yeah but not so much his groups well I like Van Morrison yeah I like this uh, an acapella group called Home Free it's the only country Oh, nice. You like country music. I've, I've seen this pop up in your... I'm, I'm of two minds. I don't know. Maybe it looks ridiculous to have all this political stuff in it. I, I like the dance videos. That's good. No, it's good to be... Do you know one. these ones where they go back and go back to the 20s and 30s? And they, they're dance. No, you have to send me a sample, an example of this yeah. kind of thing. Play it one or play one on the laptop. Yeah, I think people should enjoy life I agree I like work of life but Peter thought it was inappropriate for a funeral <laughs> uh, to play it at a funeral do, walk. The, do the walk of life walk of life oh I have to it's a dire straight song and it's funny it's it's all these baseball players dropping balls and bumping into each other <laughs> See, I love how um, Pascal is the kind of protagonist of End of Time and then Dostoevsky of A Point in Time. Yeah, Pascal's compelling figure. Pascal is whom I was reading at the time when I actually was, uh, when I, I had my revel revelation um, at the age of 26 that pushed me over, the, I was an agnostic to that point, but that experience pushed me over, over the, the threshold of faith. Yeah, that, that, that's Christopher's, short, you know, short sightedness. I, I wrote about that, I, I had, maybe it wasn't lunch we had, maybe it was lunch, could have been just drinks, at the, the polo lounge. Right. And I, I, I was testing him because he was on this kick. And I said, what do you think of Pascal? Pascal is a fraud. Oh, God. <laughs> no, Christopher. I, everything about Pascal appeals to me, um, even though I'm sure we couldn't have been more un unlike. Here, here. Where's the sound, damn it? Perfectly synced. This one for them hood girls, them good girls, straight masterpiece. 
Yeah, but there's uh, there's got to be a whole bunch of them, right? There's a whole yeah. <laughs> he had it, so I didn't know that he had a he. Let's he see. There's one right under it. Step back in time. Step back in time. There's, this has got to be a very popular channel, I'm guessing. I don't know what it is, but it's <laughs> all these dances. One way. I wonder if I'm the reason for the uh, the barking. The strange, the stranger. Oh, did you ever see Charlie Chaplin do the moonwalk? Oh, yes. <laughs> he is Charlie Chaplin does a mean moonwalk. <laughs> oh my god, I have to I'm gonna I have to share this. I, oh, I, I, this, 
that that reminds me to ask you: Were there any movies at any point in your life that mattered to you? I mean, other than I'm guessing on the waterfront during those during the yeah, day. I like Morgan. Morgan, and it's about it's about a guy who thinks he's Trotsky. Oh, let me see. Like Trotsky, something I can't remember. So long ago, Morgan. It's a black and white movie. Morgan, I'll have to look it up and, and find it. Yeah. Did any of the um, anything in the seventies or I guess when you were going through this? My favorite story? movie is uh, Winter's Tale. Oh, which one? It's what? it's the Halpern book. It's better. Oh, better than the book I thought. The No Business. Nice. The, I have to find. I haven't seen it. I have to find it. Morgan, though, let me see. The only misstep in it is they have Will Smith as the devil. And it's very romantic. And do you think Dostoevsky? Do you think Dostoevsky went off the uh, the deep end? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> because well, he, Luther was a big Jew hater. What was Luther's? Uh, was it the similar blood libel type of Jew hatred, or was it because I'm not familiar? Luther. Yeah, Luther. He's probably the biggest influence on the Nazis. Oh, it's really? Terrible. Well, I put it in. I give you that little dice. Yeah. Um. But on the other hand, he is responsible for uh, America's. That Friendliest place to choose. How do you how do you how do you deal with um, because this is this is thankful thankful the, the the thankfully the one thing about being Armenian is you only have to deal with this sort of enormous uh, you know uh, just like blinding racism from Turks and Azeris um, for the most part. Occasionally, it pops up. In other I hate the Turks. They fucking blew up the Parthenon. Yeah. I hate and they shot the nose off the Sphinx. They shot the nose off they the Sphinx. They used the Sphinxes for target practice. They used the Parthenon for a powder magazine. Great at politics, though, I gotta tell you. They're really good at playing I'm politics. Sure. Look at what they do every time there's any kind of world conflict. They just play every side to perfection. I just see that somebody tried to assassinate Kavanaugh. Yeah. This morning. Missed that. I missed it. Yeah. Where do you think all the hate is coming from? Well, well, they're they're conditioning people to. I mean, you know, you brand you brand uh, half the country in this way, and every single political. It's coming from white supremacist supporters yeah. of Trump. That's who. The, yeah, of course. Was it a Trump supporter? <laughs> Definitely a Trump supporter who was very upset about Roe v. Wade. Uh, you're asking me about about when you encounter anti-Semitism and you know among like the various great figures, how that how you how you deal with that I guess or how you um, process it. You know, someone like Martin Luther or Eliot or I did in the in the Luther book. Um, I, I mean, what he did was bad. He's dead. Mm -hmm. I have no quarrel with him now. You have no quarrel now. It's like, um, 
my, my pen pal friend Yaakov. I mean, Christians haven't burned Jews since the Middle Ages or something like that. It's 500 years ago. So, it's done. It did feel like Trump was your the vindication of all you've been saying since the art of political war. It's, it's odd, but yeah. Well, and it's because he wasn't a polit- he wasn't a party functionary. He was a, he just understood instinctively how to. Well, he didn't have his hands tied. Right. Or his tongue. But he's also immensely gifted and funny and entertaining. I mean, he he, he attracted yes. people that would have never cared about politics yeah. or voting Republican. Yeah, no, it's perfect. So when they try to um, fantasize about a post-Trump kind of, you know, normal type of person. Uh, it's a bit, I don't know. I mean, if, of course, there's going to be a, there has to be a less controversial figure post-Trump, but... Well, yeah, I mean, DeSantis is the perfect one, but I don't, I think, you know, if you're, a, I mean, the way I look at it is Trump is tested. I know what he's going to do. I know what he'll stand up to. I don't, don't know that about DeSantis. Yeah, that's true. His age is, I guess, might be a concern, but he seems to be in good shape. He's got amazing energy. Yeah, that's like for sure. That's for sure. His, his, his energy is uh, is wild. I mean, especially since he doesn't seem to watch what he eats at all. Well, that's probably an illusion. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Whatever, I want whatever... Uh, yes, the troop is back. The troop is back. Well... What advice do you have a man, for a man who, who starts to see the mortal shadow without any, you know, with it, without you're, any... You're a child! No, I know I am, but, you, when, you know, I have an active mind. <laughs> I don't have any physical... No, it's like when I said nobody gets out of here alive, which yeah. is the title of the Janis Joplin biography. Um, you know, I think I wrote that. If I was savvy, I would be different if somebody, some people live forever. Yeah, there isn't. And, and uh, I don't know, I've got, my wife is younger than I am, so I've got no responsibility to stay alive. Yeah. To support her. But, um, uh, you know, I mean, living forever. Uh, what can I say? Well, you did say that you'd you be don't, happy. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. You know, so it's, it's, it's unless you have some spectacular, and and you know, I, of course, it's not like. If I, if I were to live another 30 years, I'd be in terrible shape. It's not like... It's not like you'd live at the... It's not like you live, yeah, with a young body. Yeah. Although, you know, maybe that may change your life, who knows. You did say, just with somewhat... You said, you said you'd be happy to Do you have a, Are you married? you have a family? No, I'm... 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 Gay. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. I didn't know this always, you know, it was a fairly late uh, onset. <laughs> it was like, you know, when you have a, you're playing cards and there's one card stuck on the, 
stuck right underneath another card. You think yep. you have four cards in your hand, you really have five, and there's that. So yeah, so there's that problem. That's that's part I'm, of. I'm, 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 I can't put my wrap my head around that. Well, it's not like you've seen me gambling around with women, you know. It's just never a stuck card. Yeah, it's a stuck, you know. Uh, it's a stuck card. It, it was a, until until it was until the end of college that I, the, the, even the thought entered my head, and then it wasn't until my mid twenties that I acted on the thought. I was just reading the AIDS chapters in uh, Radical Son, which was harrowing. <laughs> that was basically your first encounter as a conservative. The which? The AIDS chat. The AIDS. Oh, AIDS. Yeah, your adventures in the bathhouses of San Francisco, yeah, like Doctor Fauci. He killed a lot of gays. That son of a bitch. The, I had, uh, yeah. I, I, in, in, in the. The Black Book of the American Left. I have a one of the books is about culture, and I has my the articles I wrote on on AIDS and how they cover. It was uh, I I was it it was where I felt my greatest impotence because I knew. I, I had this source, Randy Schultz, uh, who wrote in the band played on. Mm-hmm. And Randy, he was the Chronicles gay reporter. So he couldn't, he couldn't write what was actually happening because he would have been cut off from all his sources. Right. That's his job. Um, so I knew, I, I, I had the kind of the medical information and you know, it, it was doubling every six months, the spread. Um, and so you could calculate, you know, just extrapolate five years, 10 years, in 10 years, there's gonna be 200,000 people dead if they don't do something and they're not gonna do anything. Because the Republicans didn't wanna go near it. They, they, and. They would have been roasted if they had. Right. There the, 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 the and the Democrats, it was terrible. I I, I interviewed the head, the guy who was in charge of the epidemic at the CDC. I think his name was Collins. He was an epidemiologist and an immunologist. And I said, when are you going to... Well, I asked him how you fight an epidemic, and he said... Well, if the signs of an infection appear immediately and are on the surface, like smallpox, which just come out, the, the only way you can really do it is you separate the healthy from the carriers. Mm-hmm. So you have to have information, something that was suppressed like crazy. Right. Um, so I said, so I, I said, well, AIDS is it's got a ten-year latency. Testing's really important, he said, yeah. But they, the leadership of the gay community, they were all radical idiots. Um, then they decided to say that. So I said, so when do you think they'll be testing? He said, when enough people are dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just felt, you feel just completely powerless. Well, who do you turn to? Who do you talk to? What can you do? Um, I interviewed the doctor who was at 
public health official in San Francisco is also very bad because the pride parades attracted of course. <laughs> kids from rural areas where they were isolated and you know in the closet and and it's just yeah this is their big explode this is their big yeah and I had a conversation with this doctor but he knew things which if the public knew them everything would be different he said yeah yeah I said you know that she knew that there was only one way to get AIDS that the, the thing well was it's it, it, it's like 95 percent I think of the cases it's, it's passive anal sex right and they I, never I think it's closer to 100 percent but if yeah, it, they never never said that to this day they don't say yeah, equal opportunity virus it was well, still terrible well they they did I describe in the, in the article a scene in the bar where I, I, I was supposed to, I and a, a lesbian nurse, what's her name? I want to say Catherine, it doesn't really matter. Ratchet. What's his idea? There's Ratchet. No, she was on my side. Mm -hmm. And we were going to debate the leaders of two of the clubs and she didn't show up because she was she would have been run out of town so it was just <laughs> it was just me um, and when we finished and I, I, I you know I said everything that you need to say and that was criminalized it's terrible but it's a health issue and this is this is what's being suppressed and people started and the audience is very hostile and they one guy said I feel I have to I, I feel compelled to attack you something <laughs> like that yes. very gay <laughs> and, yes and the um but then when it was over, a guy came up to me, Larry Littlejohn. Oh, and one guy was threatening to throw coffee in my face. It's a very gay, that's a very gay threat. <laughs> I've never heard of it. was one. a bar. Uh, this guy, his name was Larry Littlejohn. He was the first gay to be hired by the San Francisco Police Department. Mm -hmm. And he just came up and he said quietly, everything you're saying is right. And then he, he's the one who took a petition to shut down the, the bathhouses. I put it on the ballot. But it, it was hopeless. Yeah, it was a, you know, a corruption, the idiot leftists. I debated the head of the, uh, I think it was the Alice B. Tokens Club. And I said, I said, I, I deplored the criminalization of homosexuality, and then I, I said to I said, I said the problem is if you haven't been monogamous for ten years, you don't really know, you know your your next partner when they have. And he jumped up. He said, "See, he said monogamous." Right. Reactionary, whatever. Right. <laughs>
Now these same, then these same people became gay marriage ad, advocates uh, thirty. Not the same people. But no, the same but there, there were terms. Um, there were guys who. who yeah. Names is just destroying me here. It doesn't matter about the names, but the but but. But, but no, but they you know that I had a I had a radio show on NPR, and uh, it was calling me a Nazi, <laughs> and and then he turned around. I can't remember who he was. He was famous, but Damn, several people. And Michael Callan, he turned too. He, they were pretty gutsy. But Schultz died of AIDS. He knew. He knew from the beginning. Well, of course, couldn't he do with passions. But was your article the first one to blow the whistle on that? There was one other guy. Uh, that I know, Michael Fomento, who eventually wrote a book. Um, but I, yeah, I, we were, I was, well, I wrote it with Peter, and we were attacked in Newsweek for doing it. It was, I don't know if they called us homophobic, but they, whatever they did, they dismissed it. And that was the, the first, that was basically the first. Warm. It was uh, 1983, so it was very early. Very early. Yeah. There's an earlier one. I'm not aware of it. Maybe there was, but yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I I did a series, and I learned a lot from. Uh, I think it was Michael Callan. He was a very courageous guy. He died too. Well, the guys that I debated, they all died. It was, just a plague, and it was so preventable. I mean, you couldn't save everybody, but it's half a million. It died, and in those half a million, you had so much. Um, it is like it's almost like a, in some ways, a cultural genocide because you had so much talent of a particular kind, which was never really communicated. Freddie Mercury. Right, I mean he's just one, but in every in That's some very talented one though. And he wrote that song. He wrote the song with the lyrics that basically prefigure the whole thing, even before he had it. Apparently, I forget the name of the song. It's like one of the, mm-hmm. the, the popular ones, but um, I mean there are many great talents who who were wiped out and sort of the. Yeah, I can't get over that. See, said monogamous. It's just some things you can't stop. It's too too overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's but it's another example of something nobody knows, which is that you were basically you you were one of the earliest voices of truth on the AIDS thing, uh, just like you describe the entirety of racial politics before anyone else did in in, in in your you know in many instances but especially in your memoirs of the Black Panthers which you know along with uh, Tom Wolfe's very funny radical chic are the must reads about kind of liberal you know chair liberal uh, humanitarian kind of leftist charity of that period. Um, 
of course, he was more liberated than you were because you were in the you were in the movement and you were you felt responsible for it, and he was simply an observer. Talk about Tom Wolfe. Yeah, oh, good observer. Very good observer. Did you? What did you think of his? Did you read his book on the uh, LSD people, um, the Kent Casey? Is no. Is there? Any I was very focused on the political left. Right. And you're very, and you're a very, you're personally a conservative type. I mean, socially in your life, you're you're monogamous, and you were you had kids, and you were never you were not doing drugs, and you were never. Oh, I did drugs. Oh, you did drugs. Um, yeah, I, that's why I'm against them. Oh, which ones did you do? A coke. Coke. I, I, and it's the availability that's really dangerous. Like I had a guy just gave me a huge bag. Is this in your Black Panther days? Made myself sick. What? Oh. Um, I think I got uh, what's the chronic fatigue syndrome from it. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, but uh, I, I'm the kind of person I, I can quit things cold turkey. I did like because I got sick. What was when I was you sick at the Cannes Film Festival? Oh shit! That's okay. I didn't. I why was I there? Even I don't know. I hung out with this. I think he was Chinese guy who was a compulsive gambler. I never saw anything like it. He he had just dropped by on thirty thousand dollars at some fucking casino we right. went to. But what era? This is the 60s? The 70s? This was... 80s? Shit. Yeah, it was, uh, it was the 80s. What were you doing in the Cannes Film Festival in the 80s? Did you have a uh, friend? Some guy said, let's go. <laughs> oh, I know. I had this crazy friend. Was a, he made that film with... Um, Oh, he made a film about the Civil War. What was his name? He was wacko. Uh, and a, a film that... Not Jodie Foster. There was another little cute child actress. They made this film. He was a director. I don't see how he directed anything. He was the most disorganized. <laughs> and, he, and he said, come on, I'm going to Cannes. And I got there. And he was nowhere to be seen. <laughs> and after a few days, we, we hooked up. But I was, I was just not feeling well. I, and uh, they have these restaurants on the beach. You're on a boardwalk, if you've never been. And, and they're under the boardwalk. So there's a staircase, and at the top of the staircase there's a menu. And he had this crowd of people he had invited to whatever, come along, you know. And he went down every single one, and without making up his mind, until finally I said, I don't remember his name, choose a restaurant or I am leaving. <laughs> I've been once, I've been once to the festival. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think I saw a single film. But did you have a you had a memorable experience at, at least? <laughs> sort of an anecdote I can only half remember. 
<laughs> much like like most everything. Uh, and you, but, so, uh, but I was very, uh, yeah. I never did a drug during the sixties. I mean, I think the first time I smoked a joint was either sixty nine or seventy. Because I was a Marxist, I want to fuck with my head. Right, right. You're an you're a theorist, Marxist theorist. <laughs> you don't want the material forces to be altered to to be in your head to be altered. Well, that's pretty bourgeois. <laughs> well, I'm I'm very um, glad you opened your door to me. Oh, I am too. One thing that I think is very instructive about your career and all the ups and downs and your immense productivity and uh, especially in relation to mortality and faith your will to overcome your medical you know one medical misfortune after another and recently. Well, I mean, it's just, you know, whatever. Yeah, in the book, they're compressed, so it seems like it's like one after another. And well, it, there was a period where it wasn't like that. Yeah, it was like just a... I, it, well, but you did it, and and, and for, for me, the le- you know, when I asked you for advice on how to face the mortal shadow, so I don't have... You, this was, we went on a tangent don't with Don't fight when you can't win. Don't fight it, but when you what? But then you're, you're lying on a hospital bed and you're asking yourself, "Is there any point in fighting this?" You can fight. You have. Oh, well, I, you know, I have this family reason, but um, yeah. But then, if you don't, I, have the fa- I don't have the. Fa- if I don't have that, I have nothing but my uh, the the creative missions that I've been pursuing yeah. my entire well, life. Well, I, I can do it. What you just have to do is ease up. It's not. It's. It's a no-win situation, basically. So, in that sense, the loss isn't that terrible. And if you're all alone and you get lost or you lose, that's worse. That's the you had a sense of accomplishment, I think. I think did you, you read that beautiful passage about Mozart wrote? Yes. But, yeah. Amazing. Yes, yeah, that and that makes me sad. The Mozart story, but he he was reconciled. He was. So. I mean, you the end of the book is very touching because you, it 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 comes off that you know you have the sense that you have you are satisfied with the life. You have lived. I uh, I feel I lived to my potential. I mean, maybe if I didn't do too many foolish things, I would have done a little more. Who knows? I often wonder what I would have done if I didn't have communist parents. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but then that that that's a rewrite that that. Yeah, you know, no, but it, it's like that. So you just. Sort of what do you what do you think you would have done if you didn't have time? I have no idea. I'm 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 shocked by how talented my sons are and both of them. Um I I I guess I have some skills. You know, my father was a very he was very lucid. He he 
he, he was a really good teacher. He, he could say, he had a clarity of thought and of, of speech. And I think that is, you know, one of my virtues as a writer. I, I mean, you're a marvelous writer. That's evident to even your enemies. Hard one. <laughs> right. Well, through a lot of work, but uh, it was a know, work. It was work getting from theoretical. I didn't squander my life. No, you didn't. And yeah. so, I don't. I, I've written that in little passages which you've read. That, that kind of attitude. Which, which seemed to give you give to give you peace, whereas yeah. a f sense of having squandered is really what the horror is. Yeah, but I think there's a lot of opportunities to do that. There's all kind of. I, I always wonder about people that just get lost, because, you know, you can help others. You can. I I think I I said this to my wife the other day that. Um, if you're a basically a good person, it's better to be religious than not. But I, you know, I'm, I've got a kind of fondness for religion, but I know that this it's abused like everything else that human beings touched. As it ever, as everything will be yeah. and shall be, and so. So, but but I I like I, I like what it does to you. Um, I mean, I like, you know, I'm, I'm not a believer, but I like, I like the Van Morrison song, um, When God Shines His Light on You, you know this one? Mm-hmm. Yes. It lifts you up. Yes. turns you around. It's just a happy, yeah, happy song. David, the, um, and, David. and there's a really beautiful song called uh, Angels Among Us. That this a cappella group sings, which is just about. I mean, it's a little overstated, but when it's whenever you're in trouble, there's going to be somebody there. Mm -hmm. Well, that isn't always going to be the case, but it's a nice idea. It's a well. If you, I guess, if you have the power of imagination to feel somebody there, um, that. That, that goes a long way, you know. I mean, I feel like that's what people of genuine faith are able to, yeah. they're able to give themselves that gift. Um, and maybe it's not, they're not the ones who are alone giving it to themselves, but apart from that question, it's like, if you, you know, I feel sometimes, being the kind of solitary person I am, uh, I am, blessed to be or cursed <laughs> I I have to often imagine my, all my friends are all over the fucking place um, you know my best friend lives across uh, the other opposite side of the globe um, I have to constantly these podcast things are nice because I can talk to people you know for I have an excuse to come here and talk for, for hours um, but I, I'm constantly finding myself in a place where I have to I, I I have to discipline myself to imagine to imagine the presence of all who matter to me wherever I am. Um, and yeah, sometimes I'm I have to with my sons. They live in they live California, California and Vegas. It's hard to live 
It's not at least they're not too far, but still, they're not here. They're not here. They're they're no, either here. They're not. He's gonna. He comes out for football games and things. Right. He's gonna fly out to have lunch. He has a plane. He has a plane, so he can just. <laughs> I mean, that, these are good. These are good. These are good things. It's got to be immensely gratifying to have such successful sons. Yeah, it really is. And I gotta say, you know, you're talking about how people get lost. Well, I mean, this is something that you can't, you must be grateful to your parents for, uh, not must be, but I mean, they're, they're, they're being communist missionaries. Yeah, I, I think about that. I, I do. I am grateful. I was just thinking about that the other morning. My parents yeah. instilled in me uh, attitudes and habits that have worked well. But beyond that, it's just, yeah, I mean, uh, attitudes and habits that we can't separate from them being communist missionaries because... Uh, That's they, right. Yeah, they were for that purpose. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And you, My father was unhappy. I'm sorry about that. But he just was an unhappy man. His, uh, do, you, do you credit the unhappiness more to the communism, which was doomed? No, or? I don't know. He told me. I, I don't know if I, I think I told him in Radical Son, but his, his father was like a mouse, and he uh, terribly dominated and abused by his mother. And I forget what, what happened. One night he came home for dinner. I forget the, the what precipitated this, but she got on his case, and he just took a fork and slammed it through the plate. Oh my, my God. Father. So that's the only time he saw him stand up. Right. As it were. And my father drew a lot of strength from being a communist. And I think my mother probably did too. My mother was, you know, she had a law degree she never used. She was too timid. She was too timid, but she's very talented woman. But she, but as you described, she she created situations in which she could dominate. Uh, the way you described her, yeah. and their marriage and the household. Yeah, she dominated him, but she also was a tremendous support for me. This is a classic Jewish mother we're describing, aren't we? Well, then the <laughs> classic one smothers you. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> right, it didn't reach a smothering point yeah. for. For you, it was a supportive one. That's just one of the sweet surprises of Radical Son is how she ends up being a kind of positive force throughout your life. Yeah. And one of the more amusing and sad parts is how your father writes those letters to you, which are so articulate in their criticisms of your every move and your every work, and so clearly envious of you and your accomplishments, which... Yeah. I feel bad for him, but when the hell... I mean, did he find a? I, I don't remember now the the ending of him of your relationship with him. But did he find a measure of uh, pride in your uh, pride in your accomplishments, or? Oh well, I you know that the one letter when I did the free world Colossus, he was very proud of that. But then when we did the book on the Rockefellers and it wasn't about the economic crisis of capitalism, it was not He was, he was shattered. <laughs> <laughs> well, he said, no, we won't want to read a book like this. It was on the New York Times. Right. 
That was your yeah. So, well, yeah. I mean, well, when did he die again? Or at what point in your was you? Was it before your second thought? He was eighty-two. Was it? That would be. What? Nineteen four. It would be. Nineteen eighty-six. Right. I, I, won't, I was only asking to because yeah. I don't remember his reaction being recorded to your becoming conservative. If there was a reaction. He was afraid of my mother. He didn't, he didn't, didn't confront me. And my mother, her attitude was based. I didn't speak, she didn't speak to her brother for two years or something because it was a Trotskyite. <laughs> she, decided family is more important than politics. She was a smart lady. Yeah, good for her. What? <laughs> so there's a lot there's a lot to be thankful for to the Horowitzes yeah. who who made you in the uh, Long Island communist quarantine as you called it. When I saw the word quarantine it sent shivers. You said your your upbringing was like a quarantine. Of, because it reminds me of, of now, of, now <laughs> of the last few years. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the ghetto. In the ghetto, but but there must be a lot of forceful personalities that were forged out of that environment. Yeah, I think, you know, the course of wisdom is right there in Genesis. God gave you free will. There's always choices. I'm gonna. There's always choices, and there's the question of how much will is in that. I mean, yeah. the free, the free is one thing, but how much will? Yes. Can you summon? Yes. Um, I'm gonna read you the, the Camille Paglia defense just to remind you, or at least the end of it, just to remind you what it was. She's still kicking. She's still kicking. Do you have you been in touch at all? No, I don't think. I would die to talk, interview her. I would die. Yeah. She talks very fast. I love it. I love her her whole style. It's like it reminds me of my upbringing, you know, because I'm. I'm I, I had her on my NPR show. <laughs> okay. Okay. Listen. Okay. Okay. I love the way she talks. Yeah. She has a great interview with Jordan Peterson from like five, six years ago on oh, YouTube. There's a pair. Yeah. Have you met? What's it? Do you have any relations with him or is no. he? He's reached a lot of people. 110 million, he thinks. Yeah, he, he has. He's got, he's got that good clinical psychologist manner and mode. He's very emotional. Yeah, he breaks down in tears all the time. But so he's, he's been a it's a very tough because he's under attack. Well, he's had some rough periods. It's not, not easy. He could learn from you, though. I mean, you've been you have similar uh, enemy of the people type of trajectories, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, I I think a lot of his what he does is a reaction against Marxism. I like listening to him. So she wrote after after. After slicing up the New York Times, Go ahead. she writes, I'll read the whole thing, that the ever-platitudinous Jack E. White has called David Horowitz mm -hmm. a bigot is, of course, stupid and unprofessional. 
but hardly surprising to the weary time readers who, like hikers confronted with a bog, must rapidly skirt White's flatulent prose whenever it appears. <laughs> but that Times editors allowed the sophomoric libel to pass raises questions about the magazine's yeah, process. You know that Jack White is black. Oh, I don't know that. No, I've never even heard of him. Yeah. Jack White is black. Well, so that was right. pretty bold on her part. Yeah. But that at the time editors allowed the sophomoric libel to pass raises questions about the magazine's process of internal review. Was this simply a late summer slip-up, in which case time will promptly admit it, or is there a double standard for PC propagandists like White? I respect the astute and rigorously unsentimental David Horowitz as one of America's most original and courageous political analysts. Geez, I, I gotta put that on. I have a site called Horowitz Books. Yo, yeah, you got, you, you, you've got to. He has the true 1960s spirit, audacious and irreverent, yet passionately engaged and committed to social change. Although we are both columnists for Salon, I do not know Horowitz, aside from when I was interviewed on his radio show in California eight years ago. But I regard him as an important contemporary thinker who is determined to shatter partisan stereotypes and to defy censorship wherever it occurs. Notably, in this case, in the area of discourse on race, which is befogged with sanctimony and hypocrisy. As a scholar who regularly surveys archival material, I think that a century from now, cultural historians will find David Horowitz's spiritual and political odyssey paradigmatic of our time. Yeah, I think you were sent to me to give me a Booster shot. What part of LA you live in? Hollywood. East oh, LA. Little Armenia. Los Feliz, basically, where you were. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I basically was conceived. And then I and then I went to school on the west side in Palisades, Pally High, Paul Revere Middle School. And then Yeah, I, I lived several years in the Palisades. Right. You were all over yeah, you then you live you had you describe in end of time your beautiful uh, your view of the ocean and I feel very Malibu, yeah. Yeah. The ocean. I always wanted to look on the ocean, but it gets boring. I like I like I like living in the hills better. Because of the animal, like there's animals, there's more color, more Mm. changes. So you 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 found you you didn't find your affinity for the endless uh, sublime Pacific to be. Limitless, I guess. Uh, no, no. Well, it really fits the mood of end of time. I love the Pacific. I go to that cliff over at my high school. Yeah. And I spend hours there sometimes just yeah. gazing into it, thinking of the Robert Frost poem. Once by the Pacific. The shattered water made a misty din. Great waves looked over others coming in and thought of doing something to the shore that water never did to land before. The clouds were low and hairy in the skies, like locks blown forward in the gleam of eyes. You could not tell, and yet it looked as if the shore was lucky in being backed by cliff, the cliff in being backed by continent. It looked as if a night of dark intent was coming, and not only a night, an age. Someone had better be prepared for rage. 
there would be more than ocean water broken before God's last put out the light was spoken. Hmm. There you go. Put out the light. Put out the light. Hmm. But we have gas in the we have gas in the heart in the lantern of the heart. There's some gas that I hope <laughs> will guide our final our final mortal steps. So how do you make a living? I got my troubles and woe, but soon as I know that Jordan will roll, I'll get along as long as the sun is strong in my soul. I the rain to fall and I'll never know what make the grass grows tall I only There ain't no love at all without a song. Oh, oh, oh.